There's a podcast that sure all the rock's heart is gold and they're climbing the stairway to eleven when they get there they know the record stores are all closed but online they can get what they came Welcome to Stairway to Eleven. This is episode eight, our last of 2023. Hey guys, how you doing? Hi, I'm John. I'm TR. Today we have three more albums for you, and TR is going to start us off. Well, gentlemen, this first album is an album that is an instrumental album, and this is our first, I think, instrumental album that we've taken on. And so this is Joe Satriani, Surfing with the Alien, released in October 15th, 1987. This is the second full-length album by Joe, but it's such a leap both sonically and from a songwriting perspective that it feels like his first proper album. For those unfamiliar, Joe Satriani is primarily known as an instrumental guitarist, a highly technical player who also served as a teacher to Kirk Hammett of Metallica and Steve Vai. Satriani redefined the genre with this landmark album. Prior to this, instrumental guitar albums were novelties and not really something artists saw as a meaningful career. Joe's EP and first album were quirky and somewhat experimental in places. This album feels like a more proper rock album with a cool diversity of tones, moods, and styles, epic themes and melodies, and jubilant shredding that any fan of guitar would love. I remember the first time my buddy Scott Holmes played this album on cassette on his boombox for me in college in 1988. I was blown away because other than Eddie Van Halen, nobody was playing the guitar this ferociously. And so began a fandom that now spans over 30 years of my life. Note that as an instrumental album, the lyrics will never let the song down. (laughs) Nor will the vocals. Yeah. So, not yet. Oh, don't even go there. Oh, not yet. (laughs) Not yet. Wait for it. Wait for it. I like that big bad moon. I love the music. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Comments. All right. So for me, Surfing with the Alien was the first instrumental rock album that I ever experienced. And when this album came out, it was right around when I first picked up a guitar and learned to play. This is one of the albums that inspired me to pick up the guitar. Also one that inspired me to put it back down. (laughs) Listening to this album made me want to just throw it down and quit because I saw the future and it was people like Satch. I didn't think I could ever compare with this kind of playing. And years later, I'm proud to be able to say I was correct. Luckily, Nirvana came by a few years later and helped me feel validated again. Right. So I was familiar with solo guitarist albums or virtuoso albums with uh, no singing. And I'm not even a guitar player, but I was already a Jeff Beck fan. So I already knew some of his stuff. So the idea of a instrumental guitarist wasn't necessarily new to me, nor was it a novelty. 
But I wasn't that much further ahead because like TR said, there weren't that many out there that you grab. There were there, but they were a lot of 70s acts that I wasn't really familiar with. But in terms of what you're talking about, TR, I agree. There wasn't anyone that was playing like this. So I first heard of Joe Satriani in my friend's house. We used to be in a band together and there was one of us that was still in, I think he was a senior in high school. When I heard this, I would have been, what were we then, TR? Are we freshmen or are we sophomores when this came out in college? Second um, year. Yeah. So I was over at his house and he said, you got to check out, if you heard Joe Satrani and our other friend, Chris, was there. And they were like, you got to hear this. This guy's amazing. I said, never, who is this guy? Never heard him. And I was driving down Lincoln Boulevard in San Francisco, heading back to school because I went to school in San Francisco. And... It was on KRQR 97.3, The Rocker. Mm -hmm. And this came on and I'm driving and literally almost drove off the road. I was just like, <laughs> what am I listening to? And it was surfing with the alien. And from then, and this is right when the album came out in 1987. So wow. I had been not just a fan, but a devoted fan right from the very beginning. It can't... For someone who doesn't play guitar, there's not many of us that go to his shows. They're usually girlfriends <laughs> or wives. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, because so, most of the audiences are guitar players. Now, if you go to a Steve that's Vai That's a lot show, of pressure. Yeah. If you go to a yeah. Steve Vai show, you'll have a mix of people because he always has just superior bands than anyone else when he plays live. He just, I mean, the drummers are great. The bass players are amazing. Not that Joe Satriani hasn't. But if I go to Steve Vai's show, I'm not going to see him. I'm going to see Virgil Donati on drums, you know, yeah. no feds. So with all that said, it real quick, this isn't going to spoil anything. It's probably my favorite Satriani album, my other turn. than Crystal mm -hmm. Planet. Yeah. It depends on which one I'm listening to that day. But in the end, it's another of my Desert Island discs, which Ooh. we seem to be knocking off a lot so far. Yeah, this podcast. So I won't waste any more time with my blabbering about it because I could go on forever about this album. Stop too, so. blabbering. Save it for the next one. Yeah. Or the even blah, the one blah. after that, you know. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the first song off the album is Surfing with the Alien. So Joe has a pretty active imagination and many of his songs are about weird or crazy ideas like meeting an alien and going surfing with them for the day. This song definitely sets the tone of the album. It rocks, shreds, and has a cool whooshing sounds that make you feel like you're <laughs> surfing through space. So the outro has a crazy technique that I had never heard on guitar before, and I remember finally seeing him play it live and gaining a little understanding of how he did it. The song inspired a production manager at Relativity Record or Records to suggest using Marvel's Silver Surfer as the cover image. They secured the rights to, to it and the bold, iconic image, and I think it was a perfect fit. It was. really was. And I didn't realize that the, the usage ran out a few years back, and they switched the cover up, because now it's just like a... couple a, of years ago, it's just like a neck of a guitar like the... Yeah, I'm like, ah, it's yeah. not as cool, but... It isn't. But it's... It got too costly, basically. Of course. <laughs> like, they couldn't come to terms with Marvel on it, and they basically just let it run out. Yeah, well, this song rocks. Got a killer groove, and of course, that guitar player guy ain't too shabby either. Drum machine? What drum machine? Who cares? Do you hear this soloing? Well, is that really all we have so far for one of the most iconic guitar songs ever? 
and surfing with the alien? <laughs> hey, I was just setting you up, man. The drummer's the one who's got to come in? Yeah. <laughs> it's oh, been a rough week. That's yeah. right. It was a drum machine on this one. It, well, <laughs> well, Je- Jeff Campitelli did play some drums. There he was does. one, like one song, I think. Yeah. And there's another. And he had like accents. There were like different percussive accents, but and they did drum programming. Him and another, yeah. another uh, drummer on the album, uh, too. Well, what's his name? Bongo something. I can't remember the guy's name. But yeah, they had to really, because in order for all this stuff to work, uh, to have it be as precise as it is, right? you really have to be playing to a metronome and it has to be, you know, it has to be precise. And right. so that's really kind of the only way they could do it. So my take on this song, it is iconic. It's one of his signature songs, which you're going to hear a lot. On this album, this is one of his signature songs. I'll come up a few times, but I would have to say in the pantheon of Joe Satriani songs, this is in his top five. There's no question. I don't think about it. And probably his biggest song outside of maybe Summer Song, I think, in his career. Yeah. Probably debatable with other people, but I can't think of two other songs people wouldn't think of immediately when they think of him. And I agree. It's just mind bending what he's doing. And it's opening track, like Tara mentioned, there's this swooshing sound that starts which sounds like the silver surfer in space just zipping by you and then it just absolutely explodes and i don't think if you weren't there i don't think you could almost i'd have a hard time imagining what that was like when all the rock you were listening to is blues-based rock you know and of course there was eddie van halen who was doing that but everything that was so big and famous at that time was somewhat blues based. There was metal, of course, but we're talking now just for rock. And this guy came in and just blew doors and it was unreal. It was. Is that, I guess I don't have as much to say as I wanted to because <laughs> there you go. To Shut your mouth. Yeah. But I do, but it is the gold standard, I think, for instrumental virtues, yeah. hard rock guitar. He's not the only one, but he is one of the ones. And I will say one thing, and I'll say this once. And for whoever listens, I, I, I want to say that, and I'm sure this is going to come up again, but to all you YouTubers out there who don't know much about him, who've been trashing him lately. What? Because he, because he couldn't play the intro, which he could play. He didn't play it the way Eddie Van Halen played it. The intro to Main Street mm. when he was on Stern's oh, show. Yeah, Stern. When he didn't even have a chance to practice with the band, he literally just showed up and did it on the spot. To all you great guitarists out there, shut your mouth. Because if you <laughs> can't it. do it, be quiet. You're in your mom's basement. You're 35. You still don't have a job, but you got a YouTube channel. You do the math, my friends. <laughs> so I, it's one of the, I have never been so bad for a story of music to hear people trashing him. This guy, you only mentioned two guitarists he trained, TR. Yeah, he taught a lot there's, of guitars. Oh yeah, there's a whole fleet of them. I just Larry Lamont, Larry Lamont, yeah, the guy from the Counting Crows. Oh really? Wow. Yes, and there's one other thrash guitarist that he also did in the Bay Area. I can't think of off the top of my head. It's mm. not like he's some chump off the streets. So, no, he's the man. He's one of them. He, him and I mean, Steve Vai is considered one of the greatest what technical guitar players, wouldn't you say? Yeah, but and he was taught by Joe, so. Exactly. He's was automatically play. a peg down. <laughs> well, but he did play with Zappa, so that kind of yeah. moves him up a little because yeah. to, to play guitar well, for Zappa, you had to be good. Well, and he was labeled as stunt guitarist on many of those albums. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway. Hey, Joe, so. where you going with that guitar in your hand? That's right. There you go. Okay. So the next song is called Ice Nine. Named after a chemical in Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle that unintentionally turns the earth into a ball of ice, this song has some searing solos and just wild sounds that kind of reminded me of the scene in Back to the Future where Marty McFly plays the cassette to his dad and blows his ears away. <laughs> but that They're was Eddie. Kind of, well, yeah, it was Eddie, actually. There are all, all kinds of different guitar tones on this from clean, icy, brittle to thick, fat, and heavy. It's a tour de force of tone. It's an awesome song. I just said that it has a killer intro groove. Then the lead comes in and it's just dang. It's out of this world. Okay, I know Surfing was the last track, but the lead guitar on here is so catchy. I'm like, who needs vocals? And mm. that solo at one minute 20, forget about it. Take my guitar away. I'm not worthy. All right. I'm going to, I'll say this a few more times. Another Joe Satriani signature song. And it really is because he still plays this live. It starts out with this mid pace, big riff. It's kind of this very kind of, it's catchy, but it doesn't really get catchy till he starts getting to the verse part of the song where you have a vocalist and he's actually playing the verse, you know, mm -hmm. with his layer guitars, obviously in the background, his rhythm. It's probably the most metal song on the album. If, he even ventures in that area because of how heavy the riff is. And George, my next note, the soloing starting at 120, mm. that <laughs> goes to 150. He has two different sounds in that solo. And the first one is he's, I can't do guitar shop talk, but the first <laughs> part of the solo is a little slower and it's a little, I would guess, TR, you can correct me, George, you can correct me, a thicker sound. And then when he gets to the next part of it, it sounds more brittle and icy, like you were saying. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like he almost flipped guitars. Like he sw switched to a second guitar real quick to do this part. And it's just brutal. It's fast. It's in your face. It's mm -hmm. nasty. Dang. All the while, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And all the it's while, you got this cool under layered riffing going on for the yeah. rhythm guitar. And it's just. It gives it a drive. It's, yeah, and it just, like... It pops. This, like, yeah, the solos are, like, searing. Like, just, like, they cook. But then there's these other times where it's just... Yeah, like, that's what I think is so amazing about this song is the different tones that he gets. And they all... I'll tell you, just the way that this album was recorded... First of all, it was done on a shoestring. I mean, they did it for next to nothing. And... But they... Really, like I, I read Joe's book, Strange Beautiful Music, and he talks about like how this album, they they thought that this would be the last album that they would make huh. because, you know, up to that point in time, nothing had really happened with this, you know, his this concept of him being a, you know, instrumental guitarist. And so they wanted to just lay it all out there. And he did. I mean, like every song is tight. Every song like that, you can tell that they just really put a lot of effort into everything to the balance, the tones, everything's there. And it's shocking when you find out, like, I think that the, I, I can't remember, the, I think the budget was like $13,000 or something. <laughs> he, he said they ended up tripling it, but even still, like... <laughs> You know, they were trading, they were, so they were going in at night, they were trading like session time for recording time, whatever they could do. He had maxed out all his credit cards and stuff and, you know, just to 
Like he was just really putting all his chips on, you know, red. Uh, luckily it came through for him, but yeah, that all the songs on this album, they've got their own mood. They, they've got their own sound. Yeah. Right. The, the, the solo that we were talking about. Sorry, John. Mm. You're good. It's almost like they dropped like any kind of reverb or delay or anything. And it, like I said, it popped because it was mm. just like in your face. There was nothing. It was very crisp and raw and it just mm -hmm. stood out and that just blew my mind first time I heard it. and every time since yeah I was gonna say just two more quick things and I think you guys will agree this is probably the best song that was written as an actual song meaning intro verse bridge chorus bridge solo back to chorus because you can hear it in all his playing I mean he, it's so melodic and and even though we're talking about how vicious the song is in parts it's still a really melodic song when he's playing and I, I think mm -hmm. This is the best example of why he's been so successful is he's been able to write songs where you can actually hear where someone would be singing in the melody he's playing. Yes. Like that's what makes him unique. Yeah. Steve Vai is a great guitarist just like him. Steve Vai can't write like Joe Satriani. That's the difference for me. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I'll say is if you need any more reason to find out over, you know, speaking the word... Go listen to this live. He's got it on, I don't know, half a dozen live albums, but the mm -hmm. two that you want to listen to is the one, can't remember if it, I think it's the one live when he's in France where oh, he opens yeah. with it. Is that, I think he opens with it on that one, or is that the one in Anaheim? I can't remember. One of those two. But if you can find Dreaming 11 EP, mm -hmm. yeah, listen yeah. to that because it's got the original, the first time they played The Crush of Love, which was a single that was released and three live tracks. Mm -hmm. And... I'm saying this part for my brother, Rich, because he knows what I'm going to say here. And he, at the beginning of the song, he introduces his band. I'm really pleased to have with me tonight. And he mentions Jonathan Moore on drums and Stu Ham on bass. And then he says, to show you how arrogant he was as a person, thanks for coming. My name is Joe. And they just rip in his song. And do you know, for years, Richie and I have, when we were, Maybe having a drinky poo or two. <laughs> we'll say, thanks for coming. My name's Joe. <laughs> We've saying it for years. Yeah. Um, that's more of a and, humble and, thing, I think. Oh, that's what I... Yeah, yes, he was I'm being, being sarcastic. sarcastic. Yeah. Right. Okay. I mean, and I've had the pleasure of meeting him one time. He couldn't have been any nicer of a person. Oh, he, absolutely. So yeah. humble. When Flying in the Blue Dream came out, he came to Ann Arbor to sign at the record town in the Briarwood Mall, which was where I got all of my music in the early mid-80s. And me and a buddy went to, you know, go meet him and have him sign our stuff, which would have been cassettes at the time. <laughs> and uh, the line was like from one end of the mall to the other. And I didn't have the stamina for it. I left, but my friend stayed oh. and met him. <laughs> it was like an all-day kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So he's a super nice. I mean, I, yeah. I, they, when I met him, it was for the Professor Satchet, Funkalus, Funkus, whatever. <laughs> when that album came out, TR knows my good buddy Joe. Mm -hmm. And I went to see him at Guitar Center in Maryland. And we had to buy tickets, and it was like 500 of us. We, it was a seated event act. We took over the whole Guitar Center. And then he literally stood there and shook everyone's hand. Mm -hmm. And I talked to wow. him. Yeah. It was cool. I was like, oh, look, I'm not a guitarist. 
but I love your music. He just kind of looked at me as like, yeah, I'm the one, I'm that guy today. <laughs> I'm that guy. <laughs> I'm that guy. Oh, so, man. Anyway. All right. Well, the next song is called Crushing Day. All this, oh, although this is about getting through a rough day, it feels more triumphant than that. I like the harmonized leads and the main theme. Like many of the rocking songs on this album, it's got a driving beat that feels relentless. In the liner notes for the 2007 20th anniversary remaster, Joe stated that there were at least eight guitar tracks playing harmonies by the outro. Wow, really? Eight? Yeah. That's crazy. I call this one the Star Trek song. Let me explain. <laughs> okay. There was an animated Star Trek series in the early 70s. And from the moment I heard the solo on this amazing song, it has always reminded me of the music in the show they would play when the characters were running somewhere. You know, you know, like 70s cartoon running. They're like doing the, like yeah. the, the arms are moving in unison as everybody yeah. looks like they're all on a treadmill or something. <laughs> and it would and there's this near, 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 you know. And um, so anyway, I've tried to go back and find an example of this by listening to the song, but I haven't found it. So I don't know why I have that association, but for whatever reason, that is what comes to mind. Anyway, I love the opening riff, and obviously the lead line is beyond amazing. So, one of the most expressive solos I've ever heard. I think the only other player I've ever heard come close to Satch in that regard is the aforementioned Mr. Steve Vai, who of course can make his guitar talk. Mm -hmm. But as we've already stated, Joe is still one peg up. <laughs> well, I agree. Just because I like it more. Yeah. I, I agree with you guys. The opening to this song is great. It's driving, but then it has a nice mid-paced tempo in the song. I had some of the same things you mentioned, TR. There's great melodic playing. I love the tool, dual sounding guitar parts, which apparently are more, it's like a whole troop of guitars. And I know that's got to be kind of a pain then to replicate live. And I was really lucky to see him play this in TR. I don't know if I knew you at this time, but I think we were both at the Pier 6 show in 2002 when he was on tour with Dream Theater and King's X. Yes, I was at that show. Yeah, and so King's X opened. Yeah. And I think Satriani came on and he played a long set, maybe an hour and 20 minutes. And it's Dream Theater played roughly the same amount, maybe a little longer, not much. And I believe he played this that night. And I was like, why not? Because when you see him... Unfortunately, he does, well, he does pull from his whole career constantly. And he, and I've seen so many surprise gems. And I think TR, when you, Joe and I, when you got us those seats, we were like row two at, in DC. Oh yeah. On my birthday. And he pulled out, we just were like, looking at each other like, is he really playing this song tonight? <laughs> but he played not from the, not of this earth. Yeah. Yeah. So this was like that for me that night when he played it. It's a special song. And I, of course, I love all the, the leads and that very cool kind of midsection jam. It, it just, you can't say they're jamming on this album because these songs are all structured, but it has that kind of a jam feel to it. Yeah, no, I, I would say like, yeah, you're right. I mean, in terms of in terms of like the fact that it's all, you know, plotted out, there are definitely sections on this album that feel like jams, you know, really? like where they really are jamming. So right. I would agree. Like, I think, you know, even though it's very planned, it definitely still has that spontaneous jam feel on a lot of this on a lot of these tracks. Yeah, is you know I don't think he gets enough coincidentally just like Eddie Van Halen. 
I don't, although Eddie, I think gets really jobbed on this. I don't think he gets enough credit for his rhythm playing because everyone always yeah. hears his solos. And that happened right. to Eddie. And I don't care what anybody says other than maybe Malcolm Young for hard rock. I can't think of the two better rhythm players are Malcolm Young and because Malcolm, that's all he did, but he also wrote all the songs. But Eddie's mm -hmm. rhythm playing is just outstanding. And I think Satriani's rhythm playing is outstanding, but he doesn't get enough credit for it. Papa Het is the right hand of God. But on this song, you really hear the rhythm playing, like you said, Terry, with all yeah. the layers. You hear so much going on, but it's so right. prominent. So I think, so you just raised a really great point about that. I think that the fact that his rhythm playing is so solid on this album, it, it, it allows the rest of it to soar, right? Like you have to have that base. You have to have like a solid foundation that enables you to do the rest of it. And he does like every one of these songs. And I don't know if you guys saw this. Um, and I'm, I can't remember. I think it was just a couple of years ago. They released the, this album and they called it stripped where they took all his solos off. And all you hear, like, basically it's like, if you wanted to go try to play the solos over these songs, mm, you know, karaoke you style. Yeah, exactly. Wait, hold on. Are you saying they released an instrumental version of an instrumental album? Without the leads? We, we refused to play the songs that we didn't play in the first place. Wait, no, it, because his leads are almost like vocals. It, that is really funny. Well, yeah, it is. And you know what, what's so incredible about it is when you take, like, so uh, they, um, they offered it up to, like, the fan club members. Like, when it came out, thankfully, they let, like, the fan club, like, you know, go download it so that, you know, you didn't have to buy the whole thing again. Like after, you know, the third time I bought this out, fourth time, probably I bought this album. So thankfully I was able to just download it from the Joe, from Joe's site, but it, it was kind of revelatory because you've heard the songs a thousand times, but when you hear, when you hear it with the main guitar stripped away, all those, all those rhythm tracks you can really focus on them and you can really hear them because you're not, you know, you're not having the, you know, the lead, that lead line going over it. And you can, by, by being like, by stripping that away, you can really hear how tight and how crisp all of those rhythm lines really are. And it was an eye opener to me because, you know, a lot of times your ear and your mind go to whatever the main melodic line that he's playing and you kind of lose track of what's happening underneath of it. But when that's all you can hear, it's pretty impressive. And the funny thing is, is like, you find yourself singing all the lines on top of it. Like, you know, it, it was, obviously, I'm not going to listen to that a whole lot, right? I'm going to listen to the whole album, like the whole full album. But every now and then, it's kind of interesting to listen to the stripped version. And, and you know, it, his leads are so melodic and so memorable that, you know, you can listen to that stripped album and you're hearing everything that he did, you know, in your mind because you're so familiar with it and it's so melodic and you can sing along to it, you know? Yeah, I mean, how many how many people have so many songs where the leads are singable? You know, this right. one, I, you know, you just tell me this song and I'm like, near, 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 you know? Yeah. I mean, come on, it's so... Right. It's a guitar earworm, which I don't even, what is that? 
Yeah. Well, I can tell you that plays large on the next song, which is Always With Me, Always With You. It's the ballad that Joe is known for, a love song played with such emotion. While it's a ballad, Joe still does some serious shredding. I think uh, this gave it some legitimacy with guitar dudes. Because, <laughs> sure. you know, there is like, uh, when it starts, like there's this like little drum machine claps and stuff. And, you know, at first you're just, okay. You, 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 you kind of think to yourself, well, okay, here's the ballad. But then he like rips it up, you know, then it's just like, okay, yeah, this is a ballad, but it's about the coolest like rock and ballad that you could have. Yeah. So, you know, he, he did, he could have made it like sappy and cheesy. He didn't, he made it like rocking and cool. I can tell you exactly when it becomes rocking and cool. I said, is this not one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever conceived? As a young lad, I actually dared to pick up a copy of guitar for the practicing musician which had the tab, and I tried to play it. I actually learned the lead part up until 50 seconds in, <laughs> when he starts all that alien hand magic with hammer-ons and whatever arcane necromancy he was using. 50 seconds was enough for me. <laughs> but man, what a song. Nice tapping punk Eddie Van Halen called. He said, you're welcome. <laughs> anyway, one of the greatest instrumental songs of all time in my book. I agree with everything you guys have said. It is yet another signature Satriani song. And, <laughs> and you're right, TR. It is probably his ballad of all ballads. And he usually put a ballad on every album. But what's unique about his ballads is that they're not blues-based like most of guitarists or famous guitarists or well-known guitarists up to that point were always doing. They're always doing a blues-based and not a Steve Ray Vaughan type blues bass or any of the guys like Buddy Guy or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But it was just, it had a blues undertone in the sounds and he doesn't do that. He's a little different and he's not neoclassical either. There was, that was the other side of the coin when it came to, at least from the non-guitarist perspective. I think what sells this song is the rhythm guitar part he has, which is constant throughout the whole song. It's like, in concert, if he was going to have that played and he didn't have a second guitarist, he played the one time, you know, that he go to his board and he tapped the board and just loop it <laughs> the rest mm -hmm. of the uh, song. Yeah. <laughs> right. But he does. I mean, it literally is constant the whole song. It's perfect. And it lays the bass down and gives the song texture because you are hearing a song now. And yeah, it's nothing's changing, but it allows him to solo on the top of it and go nuts a little bit in a ballad mm -hmm. without going nuts in a ballad, if that makes sense. It's crazy. It's restraint craziness almost. Yeah. And it's a gorgeous song. And I agree. It's his best ballad, but he's got a few that are close, but this one always wins out in the end. Yeah. And this is another one he often plays. A lot. Yeah. This, I mean, I should hope just, so. Yeah. yeah. There's three songs from this album that get a lot of play. Yeah. And four, if you want to stretch it. So. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, the next song, Speaking of blues, it's called Satch Boogie. It's a swinging tune that just rips. It has an old time feel that Joe provides with some serious rocket propulsion. I remember seeing him play this live and being blown away when he used his right hand like a capo on one of the frets and then used his left hand to tap all the arpeggiated notes in the solo section. It was 
I'd never seen anybody do that. Like basically use like the bottom part of their right hand to cover, like to as act as a capo on the neck of the guitar and then oh. use your left hand to, to tap all the, you know, all the notes for the solo. Unbelievable. Just like that blew my mind when he did that. And when I saw him play it, you know, like you, you don't like when you listen to it, you just don't have any idea of because you can't, you know, you, know, you don't know. Or at least I, I don't have a, you know, a concept of like, you know, where on the neck he might be for some of this stuff. And so when you see it live and you like some of the tricks and stuff that he does to get these sounds, it's pretty impressive. And that's always been something that I've enjoyed. You know, when you go see him live, you, you get an appreciation because, I mean, when you listen to it, I don't know, you kind of, to me, like, it obviously sounds really not complex, but just certainly like, you know, there's a lot of work going on there. Right. But it still sounds like it doesn't sound overwrought. Right. It just, it sounds natural and it sounds like it's easy. Yeah. And you know, when you see what he's doing live, you really, you know, start to see like, wow, you know, it's just, it's mind numbing. Like you said, George, you know, it inspires you to pick up the guitar (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then put it right back down again because it's like, okay, I can play, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb. This guy's like ripping it up so hard that it's like, okay, I, there's no way. I, even if I had a metronome in 500 years, I, I would never get, I could not do it. Yeah. <laughs> Just you know, never get there. I've got like short, fat fingers. And I don't know, I haven't seen Joe's fingers, but I have seen Steve Vai's fingers and they are like twice oh, as long yeah. as mine. They're like, like tw- <laughs> he's got like foot long fingers. It's just like <laughs> right. alien fingers that are like, Wrapped yeah. around, you know, you can do anything with those. I'm, I've got little fat piggies. For this, I said, break time is over. Back to melting your face off. <laughs> actually, I remember, I didn't remember this until I started listening to this, but I actually uh, worked on the opening riff for this song too. And uh, I was never any good at it. <laughs> this is virtuoso territory and I'm a second string rhythm player at best. So this track, like its name implies, makes you want to shake your butt and boogie. I have two quick things to say. One, TR, you mentioned playing Mary Had a Little Lamb. I don't want to dash your hopes, but have you ever heard Steve Ray Vaughn just shred that song well, before? Well, yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean like that. I was just kidding. Because <laughs> you were like, yeah. well, I'm playing Mary Had a Little Lamb. I'm like, well. well and yeah. your, second, your second thing about putting guitar down, I remember once I uh, heard John Petrucci, somebody said that to him. I, I just put my guitar away. and said, why? If you like what I'm playing, that should make you want to play more. I always, I always dug that about him when he said yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, sorry to, to, to dig into the whole like simp, you know, simplistic, intended to be simplistic music. You know, that joy to the world is just the major scale backwards. Is it really? It, it is. <laughs> you just, just play the major scale backwards. Like oh, from the yeah, last note. Nee, 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 nee. And hey, it's, pretty cool. it's thematic. It's this holiday season. Yeah, that's very cool. All right, so for me, I'm going to say it again. Another Satrani signature song, but it really is. I mean, this song is amazing. I I love the intro. I love the 1940s jitterbug vibe to it. You yeah. Know, it, it really, ha- it's like a modern take on the jitterbug dance. You, you hear that music. And if you watch the video, which I'll bring up in a second, mm-hmm. it, you've got people, you've got the train coming in on the video and you've got people dancing. It's just very cool. And it just has this great kind of rockabilly shuffle to it. It's just, he's shuffling, baby. And you get to 150 
and then he taps. Remember, I told all of you yahoos on YouTube to just <laughs> shut your traps. You listen to 150 to 235, which is the part we're all waiting for in the song, even though the song's awesome. And it's just, it's, I hate to keep saying it. It is, it's mind bending listening to him do this stuff. And yet there's still a song here. He's right. And I'm not taking a shot at Ingve. I know how great of a guitarist <laughs> you know, he is. It's so funny because I I knew where you were going with this. <laughs> he is. He's a he's one of the greatest guitarists ever to live. Yeah. There's no doubt. His technique is his speed, all that is there's it's unquestionable. But it's clinical. Yes. Yeah, there's right. no feel. And he can't write a song. And here you have this kind of jitterbug shuffle, rockabilly song. That when you watch the video, which was actually really big on MTV, this was on all the time. I think this is what really helped him. Mm -hmm. Tier, when you mentioned yeah, he agree. maxed out his credit cards, and I remember reading about that, he got a lot of airplay on MTV. And it wasn't just like headbangers balling thing, it was playing all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's a short little video, three minutes. It's like, who the hell is this guy? And, yeah. the, and he goes like Joe Satriani. And then you hear it, well, he goes by Satch. And you're like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. You know, so it just, again, I keep saying these are signature songs, but these really are songs you should listen to if you've never listened to them before, because there's a reason why people like them so much. Yeah. That's just the first side of the album. By the <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. Well, let's get to the second side then. The next song is it's kind of short, but it's it's called Hill of the Skull. <laughs> and until I got the liner notes to the 2007 20th anniversary release, I didn't know that this is uh, Joe's soundtrack to the crucifixion of Christ at Golgotha. Oh, also really? Known, also known as the Hill of the Skull. Wow. I always felt that this was an epic track that was incredibly emotive, especially with all the shrieks and wails at the end. Just chilling. Yeah. I said this starts off immediately epic like from the first notes it's like boom i'm epic and it just kind of stays epic yeah and it's short but sweet not filler because as short right. as it is you know we've mentioned before there's some filler stuff this is not filler yeah that's interesting you say it to her and i'll say why in a second uh to me first off every album could use a little skull in it you know <laughs> especially a flooding flying flying skull. skulls flying skulls uh uh, uh. So to me, I like the song, although I'm no Jones for it, but I do like it a lot. And to me, it's like the intermission of the album. Mm. Yeah, you flip sides over, but it's like, all right, slow down for just a sec. Let's do something a little more epic, but a little slower because you're going to still get your face melted and for a few more songs. But let's just enjoy where we are. And that's why I feel about this song, even though it's big and grandiose and epic sounding. I did not realize that about the backstory to this because to me it was i almost feel like it's like an expedition in the jungle and they're trying to get to their final place where there's this big giant skull on the side of a mountain they <laughs> finally find and this is the music <laughs> playing you know <laughs> jumanji yeah it is yeah exactly <laughs> it is very epic for only being one minute and 46 seconds yeah yeah the next song is called circles it starts kind of chilled out with a recurring theme but then uncorks and totally rips into a jam that rocks. It comes back to the first theme, giving the song a cool use of dynamics. 
So it's kind of chilled out and quiet and then it rocks and it's really loud and then kind of comes back to that. So I, I really appreciate the fact that he uses dynamics pretty well on this album. He does. I love that intro riff. It, you know, the like, it, it's clean-ish. It's not really like a lead because it's kind of chordal, but chordal, is that a word? Yeah. I think it might be. Yeah. I just don't use it much. But it's kind of supernatural how simple and brilliant it is. It's actually my favorite part of the song, especially, well, let me get to that. I said, it's not even the lead part and it's amazing. But then the song kicks into gear and the lead takes off like a rocket coaster with one engine out spiraling all over the place. The contrast when it goes back to into the clean guitar is just beautiful. And like I said, that's my favorite part, actually. The leads are cool and stuff, but the, that, the, the clean guitar on that is just brilliant. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you guys. This is one of my favorite songs off the album. I would, you, love... would you say, John, that it's a signature song? <laughs> no. Oh, because, oh right. no, okay. because right. this is, I think, a deeper cut for him, to be honest with you. Yeah. What I love, though, and I agree with you, George, it starts off with this very clean, quiet guitar. There's a little bit of drumming going on in the background, and it's the drummer's doing drum clicks on, you know, on his snare. And it's got just this kind of, atmosphere that you feel like it's i don't know midnight which is funny because it's again but it's kind of it gives Wait you that feeling it. yeah stay on target it kind of just has that feeling and then the only disappointing thing about this song which is still cool is that it's drum programmed because there's a double bass beat that kicks in where the frenzied riffing and nutso section of the song where he just goes off comes in and I really wish it was a real drummer doing that bass, that double bass part that leads into that frenzied section. And I love how it goes right back to that clean part at the end and quiet. And I'm going to tie this. Here we go. I'm making a leap. I'm tying this into something else. Oh boy, here it comes. I but it's wait. interesting that I tie it into this. Okay. But don't say anything. Just let this me is, say this it. Is the, this is my favorite part of the whole show. Well, you'll really like this one then. So at the very end, when he's doing that clean part, George, that you mentioned, yeah. which in TR, how you mentioned it's the beginning at the end, it starts to go off in this kind of sound design a little bit. And it kind of reminds me of this band called Porcupine Tree that cool. TR and I are big mm. fans of. There's this just weird kind of sounds going on in the background. And there's this weird, yeah. kind of, not percussion, but kind of electronics that kind of pace up and speed up a little bit. And it, just these different sounds and sound designs. I really love that part of the song. And this is one of those songs that I wish we had the full recording and not the fade out because I'd love those to hear what else is going on in the fades. Background. Yeah. But that's an interesting song. point, John. I, I, I hadn't thought about that, but I see go, where you're coming from on that. And go under the cans and listen because yeah. when he stops playing the, the clean guitar, it, it goes off into a little bit of sound design and it's really cool stuff. Really. Yeah, cool. definitely. All right. Well, the next song is called Lords of Karma, and it's essentially two chords, A with an augmented 11th and A dominant 13th with a suspended fourth. Unfortunately, I don't know enough of music theory to explain what that means, but I can tell you that these chords lend an air of mystery and the exotic to this song. This was going to be the original title of the album until a critic changed Joe's mind. Interesting. I said that the intro guitar builds tension and then the rest of the instruments kick in and find a groove. There may not be any words, but I feel like the guitar is telling a story here. 
Only Joe knows what it says. <laughs> Is that a little bit of pseudo sitar there? No, it's, it's actual electric sitar played sitar. by Joe. Nice. Yeah, I, that's the part I love of this song is the electric sitar, and it, it does give a vibe to this song, and it's just slightly different. This is one of my all-time favorite songs in his whole catalog. I absolutely love this song. Not a signature song. This is a super <laughs> deep cut Yeah, uh, for him. Just absolutely love it. Here's my real tie-in, TR. I have two tie-ins on this album. I love, at the end, how it makes me think of Michael Ackerfeld from Opeth. Do you know how Michael plays chords to do his soloing sometimes? He has a unique way of, he doesn't necessarily solo sometimes, but he, the way he constructs his songs, it's a lot of chord playing, I guess. And Catatonia does that, if I'm saying it correctly. Hmm. And I like how Satriani does this at the end of the song during the kind of fade out solo that he does, which is my favorite part on the whole album. And it just reminds me of that type of playing. Just such a killer song. And it's hard to describe this song. You have to actually listen to it to, to hear what yeah. he's doing. Uh, How yeah. could you describe it without listening to it? No, well, we, we just did. Right? <laughs> no, but what I mean is it's hard to describe what he's doing in the song, really. Yeah. You yeah. have to hear what's going on because it might sound a little simple to you, but it, there's so much, but so many different angles to this one. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it earlier, John. The next song is called Midnight. Uh, Two-handed tapping taken to the next level. A cross between Baroque and some Greek or Middle Eastern dance. Joe wanted it to evoke visions of a secret ceremony taking place at midnight in the thick of a beautiful European forest. I think he achieved that. I said, I don't even know what to say about this one except, what? What? Get out of here, you crazy-fingered mutant. So... This is for the guitarists in the room. This is not for the, the non-guitarists, this song, I think, in terms of trying to appreciate what he's doing. Because it is, it's just him tapping, like you said. However, I will say, I don't feel like this is happening at midnight, this song. I feel like the song coming up is the one that happens more at midnight. Mm -hmm. That's the one I picture hearing late at night. And I almost feel like the titles were switched from my perspective. And that this song should be called the next song's title. Mm -hmm. I won't, I, there's not much for me to say because I'm not a guitarist, but I, I do recognize how great this is. It's a short song. It's actually the shortest song on the album, I think, isn't it? Mm -hmm. At a minute 42. So. Not filler. No, but it's yeah. still amazing. But it's, yep. this is probably more appreciated by people who play guitar. Well, and the next song is not called Midnight, but it's called Echo. It's an it's echo of a, midnight. It's an echo of midnight. It's got a 5-4 time signature with a clock-like rhythm guitar picking under it that sets the structure. But at two minutes, Joe plays a solo that just seems to pour out of him. It eventually moves to an epic-sounding theme that then goes back to the first motif. It's a super cool, chilled-out way to end this album. I said there's some low-end here. A lot more low-end than the rest of the album. And it kind of had a Alice in Chains, Man in the Box kind of, you know, kind of vibe to it. I guess this is probably my least favorite classic of this collection of perfection. But it's a great tune and all, but by this point I was just kind of fried, so I couldn't think of anything else to say. <laughs> oh boy, I absolutely love this song. It's, I love the feel. I mean, 
like I wasn't just saying this to say, I really feel like this is the song I you would be hearing late at night. Mm-hmm. It just, I just have this feeling you're in a city, it's late, there's no one on the streets and this is the music playing if you're walking or driving to the city. And it's not a heavy song, which is kind of cool. And he still goes off on it. There's no heavy guitars, there's no heavy riffing, but the playing is just outstanding. And it's maybe after Lords of Karma, is it maybe my favorite song? In the, I don't know. I absolutely, I've always loved this song. And I heard, I had a bootleg from a, a show he did in San Jose, which I grew up in San Francisco in California and San Jose is about 50 miles away. And I was like, oh, I got to hear this. This is a local show. Somebody bootlegged this show. And I was just like, what the hell? He played this at that show. Mm. Unreal. It's, it's a great closer. It's almost like a fade out on a song. This song kind of fades the album out because everything's been so frenzied up to this point. And this is the song that kind of just brings you back down to earth. You're done surfing. You got your board on top of your van. You know, you're out of your wetsuit. You're going to get some tacos. Exactly. Yeah. You just washed all the sand out of the back end of your wetsuit, you know, because you were, for some reason, sat down in the sand after you got out of the ocean. But it's just, it's a nice way to kind of fade out of the album. Like George said, at this point, you're like, holy smokes, it's not even 40 minutes and I'm burned out from listening because it is. It's (laughs) just 37 minutes of frenzy. It's work. Craziness. Yeah. Good work if you can get it. Yeah. (laughs) So in conclusion, this album is a masterpiece in my opinion. It established Joe's career as an instrumental guitarist and opened the door for others to be able to have a career doing this. I've seen Joe 15 times since 1994, both solo and with his G3 outings and he's an amazing performer. He's touring with Steve Vai in the spring of 2024, and then playing with Sammy Hagar, Michael Anthony, and Jason Bonham later in the summer, playing Van Halen songs. So go see him. I know I will. I wish I was going to that. I would like to see him with Vi. When's that coming? That's like in the March-April time frame. Decibel Fest. Oh, oh that's the one... Okay. That's the yes. one we can't go right. to because yeah. it's decibel. Right. Yeah, it was I, right before that. I did get to see him once on, unsurprisingly, Flying in the Blue Dream. Or mm-hmm. a Blue Dream. Wow, that's a long time ago. Yeah. I'm old. Not as old I've as you, him. but I'm old. No, that's true. <laughs> as far as I know, I've seen him, I think, 11 times in all different various incarnations, whether it be his band, G3. Never seen Chicken Foot because I never really cared much about Chicken Foot. And uh, and also seeing him do, you know, Guitar Center meet and greets mm-hmm. and stuff. So, yeah. Which he actually played. That actually counts. He played yeah. like three or four songs oh, yeah. of that. Because he debuted the album for us before it was even released. Was oh, like, man, that's cool. This is going to be sick. It's a song, Mind Driver. The second Mind song. Mind Drive, yeah. I think or Mind Drive. He played yeah. that. I looked over at Joe. I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> I can just see Joe, too. And it was like, you know. Beep, 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 beep. Everything was getting beeped out. because, <laughs> And we were just like, what? Everybody's losing they, their minds. He just played. And of course, he's playing to, you know, the demo background music, you know, with yeah. the cheap drums and everything of the electronic drums. And it's, yeah. We got to stop picking all my albums that are like in my Desert Island 50, yeah. you know? It's crazy. I'm getting back at you for picking Fair Warning. Yeah. Oh, I... I literally didn't even have to listen to this album. 
to prepare. <laughs> yeah. That's how much I, I love this album. I've listened right. to this album so many times, all the time. All right. Well, let's get away from all this technical stuff and move on to the next album. So it's interesting that I'm going next. And it's interesting that I had a, two tie-ins this time that I like to do. So I figured it was time. It's our eighth episode. I've done messing around. It's time to start <laughs> pulling out some of the bigger guns for me. And I went with the album Stupid Dream by the band Porcupine Tree, released in 1999. And when I say it was, I was done, not messing around, but going to standard, TR knows how big of a fan I am of Porcupine Tree. And I go back a ways. I'm not a newer fan, which is funny. I was newer fans have been around 20 years. But I feel it was time to start venturing off into slightly different territory, at least for my picks. Stupid Dream was Porcupine Tree's fifth album. They are from England. And they, up to this point, were a kind of, well, originally were a, a solo act under the name Porcupine Tree for guitarist and songwriter and producer. And as a lot of the prog hobbits say, God. Remixer of all things. Yes. Stephen Wilson. And then it, it started morphing into a band, but the original music was psychedelia. It was space rock. It was prog rock. And on this album, it's a little different. It's now more kind of alt rock and it's still prog rock, but it's a little different. This, there's more song structure here. There's more song oriented direction. Think prog rock meets Radiohead, I guess, oh, is a great way to describe them. You know, because there's some sing-alongs on here, which the previous album, not too many sing-alongs. So it was released March 22nd, 1999 in the UK and in April 6th worldwide. They recorded the album throughout 1998. A lot of these songs date back to 1997, which is interesting when you consider that in 1997, they were touring for the album Signify, which was, to me, the tour de force. I know most fans would disagree with that, but was more when they were geared towards heavy prog rock, Pink Floydish influenced prog rock, psychedelic stuff going on. They consist of Stephen Wilson, Richard Barbieri. If you don't know who Richard Barbieri is, he used to be the keyboard player for a little band called Japan. If you don't know who Japan is, go watch Duran Duran, and then you know who Duran Duran got their act from, because Japan was before them. Bass player is Colin Edwin and drummer is Chris Maitland. Not the world-famous Gavin Harrison on drums at this point. This is the album that got me into Porcupine Tree while I started listening to them. Before this, I first heard them on a little on an online internet radio station called Yeti Radio. And I ended up becoming a DJ at that station at some point. But I first heard the live album, Live in Rome, or whatever, Coma Divine, but it's Live in Rome which was for the Signify Tour, which is the album before this. And I, so this is my first album that I got of theirs that was released by the band when it came out. This came out, like I said, in 1999. So I've been doing this for a while. It's hard to describe how important this album is to me because it kind of changed everything musically for me when I heard this. It's the start of their second period. Like I mentioned, they went from their kind of spacey prog rock to now more rock-oriented song structures 
There's some ballady stuff going on here now, but it's still psychedelic in parts. It's still prog rockish in parts. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned, people like would say to me, oh, they sound like Radiohead a little bit. I'm like, okay, that's what you can compare them to. Fine, but they're really not. Maybe Radiohead and Spirit more than anything else in terms of experimenting. It's definitely, like I said, one of my favorite Porcupine Tree albums. I had the one, one old man get off my long comment I'll make about it is I wish some of the newer fans, the post in absentia fans, I wish they would appreciate this era more because it seems like they only like five albums from Porcupine Tree, which is all the Gavin Harrison albums. But in absentia was my first Porcupine Tree album. For most people, it was. So on that note, I've blathered enough. You guys go ahead and give me her. So this album was my dark horse. I came in quite familiar with the other two, so this was the one I needed to really take care with my listening. Let's see how it go. So this band may be the reason that I'm sitting here doing this with you guys. <laughs> While it's possible that I would have met John from other shows, Porcupine Tree was how we came together. So in addition to liking this band musically, I'm grateful that it connected me with so many people that became good friends. This album predates when I got into this band a little. I picked them up in in absentia. I soon found myself enjoying their entire catalog, from their more psychedelic and quirky early material to their Pink Floyd-influenced stuff through their progressive pop and then heavier later output. I kind of wish they had dwelled in this space a little longer because the Signify, Stupid Dream, Lightbulb Sun era stuff is really good. Oh, I'm, I'm so with you on that. <laughs> that's the period I prefer uh, yeah. as much as I like. The Sky Moves Sideways, which is their Pink Floyd influenced album, I guess. It's not really Pink Floyd, but it has some touches of it. Oh, yeah. I still prefer signify and i'll even go to recordings which is a compilation yeah. of songs. well that's yeah that stuff came from all this or these those albums anyway i'm right, kind, well it's i'm kind of glad that some of the i'm totally losing the word associations that were made are ones that i have noted i'm like all right i'm on the right track here even if you think i'm a jerk for saying it we'll get to a song where he actually mentions radiohead <laughs> yeah <laughs> so but Tiara, I want to just double down on something you said. It's true. This is the band that that we first bonded over and became friends. And like so many other people I know, and I know a gazillion Porcupine Tree fans, mm-hmm. that we used to have huge gatherings before shows. Yeah. Like 30 or 40 people. We'd meet up hours right. beforehand. Yeah. Like the Yahoo groups. Remember like being on, what was it, right. Dark Matter Dark or Matter. whatever? That, yeah. I was actually an admin on Dark Matter. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, I got asked to do that. Yeah. And that's how I met Marty and you and just like the whole crew. I met met my good friend Lisa that way. Um, My friend Rich, I've mentioned a number of times this. He's a Porcupine Tree fan. Yeah. Just so many people. Some nights that, you know, a little hazy still to this day. (laughs) And we traveled all around to see this band. So uh, I just wanted to, to reiterate, I agree. This this was a, a bringing up point. And we were fortunate enough to spend a little time with them, the band. So it, it holds a special place. But anyway, enough of that. Let's actually get in. The album opens up with a song called Even Less. And I would say 
And I would argue with most newer fans that this is still one of their five best songs ever. It's memorable. It holds a special place because it was the new version of the band. When you first heard this song, it opens up with this kind of orchestra sounding buildup. Like, you know how an orchestra, when it starts, they're all playing, but it's just like one noise. And, you know, the band, the orchestra is starting to tune their instruments. Mm -hmm. That's what this starts out with a little bit. And then it comes in, which, by the way, I believe it was the East of England orchestra that plays on this song at the beginning. But then it comes in with this sample of a girl laughing. And then it gets very atmospheric with guitar slide playing. And it's really cool. And this is kind of still a little Pink Floydish there in the sound. It's a little psychedelic in the sound. And then this band just absolutely explodes into this heavy riff, not heavy metal, but pretty damn heavy to give you the context of the song. And it builds and plays. And then it kind of comes down to this very kind of English country acoustic guitar playing section and just has this amazing emotion to it. I think some people would argue whether Stephen Wilson's a great singer or not. He sounds great on this song. I've always thought he was a pretty good singer. He's not Dio, and he would admit he's not Dio. But I always thought his voice lent itself to the music really well. Yeah. And, and I think it does this in this song, and the way it has the buildups, the heavy parts, to the slower acoustic parts. Uh, he has a very kind of cool, not a yelling chorus of even less, but it kind of sounds like that because he's a master manipulator in the studio, so he makes his voice sound even bigger, but yet distant singing even less in it. And it kind of reminds you a little bit of the Sky Move Sideways Signify period with some of the sounds. And I should mention that some of the work from Richard Barbieri and keyboards and his sound design that he does, it's otherworldly, the, the sounds he comes up with. Because he's not a Rick Wakeman or Keith Emerson on keyboards. He's all about textures and layers. And he can play but it'll tell you flat out that he's always about trying to find unique sounds. And this album is loaded with unique sounds. Song builds up to a heavy chugging riff at the end, which is the metal part of the album, or one of them, because he was moving towards heavier music with this album. And then it starts to fade out. And again, these interesting, weird sounds. And then you hear this curious number counting by a woman. <laughs> and she's counting four numbers off. Zero, zero, nine, six. TR probably knows these numbers by heart yeah, by now. That's right. Two, two, five, one. Did anybody two. else think of Lost? Well, it's interesting because do you know what these numbers are? No. The, these numbers are taken from recordings of shortwave number stations, where these stations were used by intelligence agencies around the world. Countries all use them, and they're used as codes for their operatives in the field. And as far as I know, they're unbreakable because nobody knows what the codes are based on the numbers because the numbers are random. They change and the voices are all different. And if you have shortwave radio, I still believe you can hear some sometimes while probably not a active thing by most larger countries in the world. But it just gives you this different feel that there's something different about this album, the way this song ends with the number station. Definitely one of my favorite songs by the band. And I will say this again, although it's not Satriani, this is one of Porcupine Tree's signature songs. <laughs> I said it start, I said it starts off slow, 
and then bam, big old song. Bring it back down again so Stephen can sing. I like the heavy part where I was expecting a chorus, but he didn't sing over it and went back to a verse. And then there's this chunky, heavy riffs for the head bob. Thank you very much. (laughs) I like the solo. I felt it had a bit of David Gilmore flavor on it. Thank you very much. Uh, then I just said weirdo prog nerds. Yeah, this is a live staple for many years. And this seven minute version is shortened from what later came out on the recordings album. Yeah, definitely one of the, one of the, one of the best songs by this band. It's a great tune. And just, I just remember hearing this live on so, so many shows. So the first time I ever saw them, I originally was supposed to see them on this tour. I was going to go, but I decided not to. They were going to play in Wheaton, Maryland at (laughs) Phantasmagory. Oh, wow. Yeah. They were opening for Gong. And I was like, well, if I go, I can watch them and then leave because I get back on the Metro because I was not, I didn't drive to work that day. And I was like, going to have to go with all my work shit. I'm going to literally have to find a place to eat and go to the show and then get home. And I wouldn't be home till like. God knows how long, because that's a long ride home for me living in Virginia. Freaking wait. Yeah. And I didn't go, and I wish I did, for this tour. So I didn't get to see them until Nearfest, which is Northeast Art Rock Fest that was very big for a number of years. And it was Nearfest 3, and they were the headlines on Saturday. And they opened with this song. And I was hoping they would. And so to hear him come out and do the slight guitar part, and then they just go into that big, booming opening riff. And I was just like, oh, this is my band. Mm-hmm. Minus the cutoff shirt Steve was wearing that night, but nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. He didn't always have the best fashion sensibility. Well, once, once he went just to the t-shirt, the black t-shirt and black pants, you know, that that's, you don't have to wear anything else on stage. Well, yeah. And he didn't, especially on his feet. Yeah, that's true. All right. So the second song is called Piano Lessons. And this is an interesting second song. After we just heard this counting from these number stations, the sample, as it fades out, it starts right away with piano. Song's called Piano Lessons, but it starts out with this really cool kind of piano playing and it just kicks right into this kind of psychedelic swirl of music with, again, this great kind of sliding guitar sounding thing going on and it's hard to tell i call it a thing because i'm not sure if actually steven's playing slide again or if richard's doing something with some sound manipulation because it's really psychedelic sounding this is probably the most psychedelic song on the album because it's real dreamy tr mentioned dream pop earlier there's a lot of dream pop on this too but it's not dream pop bubblegum stuff that we've heard before in the past it's dream pop like prog rock you know so it's Or there's it's like a dream project. Yeah. yeah. So like George said, there's a lot of nerdery going on here. <laughs> it's nerds. Nerds. You know, which nerds. later become known as hobbits. Yes. <laughs> so, but I love, it's a catchy song. It's a rhythmic song. This song was released as a signal single. There's a video for it, believe it or not. And it kind of solidifies that this is a newer band now with this song. It's poppier than the previous song. The previous song was very art rockish in the way it was constructed and sounding. This is more pop oriented, yet it's still very psychedelic. Steven's got some great solos on this. Again, George, you said it, the David Gilmore thing is all over this. He, mm-hmm. Steven's 
not Joe Satriani guitar, but he's a very good guitar player and he's a tasteful player. He knows what to play, when to play, and he knows not to shred because he knows he can't. And I think he would admit that. What he does do is really good and it sounds great. And this is a, a great example of it. The chorus is catchy. The lyrics are really catchy. You know, what is it? He mentions his 10 fingers, but he calls them something slightly different. They come in five varieties. It's, and of course, that's not what the song about. Phalanges? It's, it's, you know, it's his criticism of the music industry, basically, which this whole album is basic. It's kind of like soul searching and and his lyrics. And they're interpretive, of course, and he can tell you what they mean. But you can glean other things off them because lyrics are generally subjective to people. They all interpret things differently. But this is one of his songs where he is somewhat critical of the music industry. It's a great song. I love it. And it is very poppy, but very psychedelic. And the ending is just a swirl of psychedelic sounds and guitar playing. And you guys tell me, I don't know what it's called, but the end when TR, the guitar change sound that he uses at the end. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. I'd have to play it for it, but I love how his guitar changes tones at the very end to do this. It's not a solo. He's just playing chords, but it just sounds great with all the swirling going on in the background. Yeah, I have to I have to agree with you on the lyrics. I mean, they tie into the downside of the music business, right? Having to sell your music, like having like, and that's what this, you know, the the cover of the album is, you know, somebody in a in a well, the new version of it is like a person in a in mop gear like holding up a cd and it's just very antiseptic looking and just you know it all comes down to like here's the product and you know a musician funnels all their emotions and and their talent and everything into this music and then it gets pressed onto a a billion cds and gets sold by some record company and I, i you know that's the duality of this whole thing and some of you know what what he was struggling with, you know, like I'm making this music, but then I go have to go sell it, you know, and I got to, you know, you de- yeah. And I think that, you know, was a, a real hard for, thing for him to have to accept or, you know, live with. And while this features piano pretty heavily, it also, as you, as John said, features Wilson playing a lot of slide guitar. And I, you know, I don't know why, but I just never realized how much slide guitar he's playing on this album, but it's a lot. And and like you said, it's always well done. And it also adds to the atmosphere and the tonal quality and the just the sound construction, you know, adding those layers of slide on top of everything else that's going on, I think definitely lends and you know a unique flavor to this album i said cool heavy guitars i like the vocal style too said this one seems more accessible radio friendly which jives with what john was saying i said this is not a bad thing it does remind me of someone that i can't put my finger on the and a little cadence i guess of the song is kind of like a tom petty song to me like i could hear oh. him singing over the verse it's like a Dump, yeah. dump, da, 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 dump, dump, da, 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 dump, dump, you know. Yeah. And that guitar part at the end is a little jangly, mm-hmm. like Tom Petty. Yeah. At the very end of the song that he does. Yeah. 
that's actually that's an interesting comparison because yeah. you wouldn't think that, but it right. You know, when you start venturing into a more pop or song oriented world, you're bound to bounce into something at some point. All right. So we'll move on now to the third song, which is not much to say. It's an interlude. It's only 28 seconds long. And George, I know we, we've we talked about interludes before when we did Jethro Tull. I will say, I really miss when PT does this on their albums. They've been doing, they had done this on the previous album, Signify, and on Up the Downstairs. They didn't do this on Stand With Sideways, but I love these little short 30 seconds or a minute or minute and a half bits they do because there's all these weird swirling sounds and interesting little parts and there are parts that he's used throughout his career in other projects and this song is no different this is the title track called stupid dream which is 28 seconds and it's basically a segue into the next song but the one thing that kind of catches me is that again it's got like this operatic singing at the very beginning and it sounds like an orchestra again and then all these weird sound designs going on and then it it leads into the next song but it actually ties in very nicely i said title track or filler maybe both news at 11 yeah i just said a short semi-haunting piece that really just bridges into the next song and he's known for doing this on his albums, these little bits. Yeah. And, and these bits end up on his other projects. Like he has a project called No Man that he's been with for years. Where you hear some of these parts more fully expanded or other things. Like he has another project called Bass Community, which is an ambient thing. So that's why I love all this, these little bits, because they're extras. I'm, I'm not opposed to this stuff when it's done well. It's not just, you know, banging or just straight noise there's other things there's texture to it so but it does lead nicely into the next song which is called pure narcotic which is the acoustic piece on the album for the most part it was also released as a single this is probably the most alt rockish sounding song it's most it's not the most straightforward song on the album but it's pretty close to being straightforward it's a simple sad sounding song but Steven on acoustic guitar, there's random percussion from Chris Maitland. You know, it's solid, unassuming bass work from Colin Edwin when it comes up. And there's kind of some cool piano and, again, some psychedelic synthy sounds going on. Richard plays a glockenspiel, Richard Barbier, which is really cool, which kind of adds another flavor to the song. And it just kind of has a dreamy feel to it. It's a little dreary, too. It's The lyrics are, you know are kind of sad where he sings, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not like you. It, and the harmonies between Stephen and Chris Maitland are amazing. And they've done this together before when Chris Maitland was the drummer in the band when they played this song. And I will say at this point, there are two albums Tierra mentioned on the album covers. There's also two different album covers. They're similar album covers. The original album cover has the same guy and they kind of, I don't know what those suits are called, but they're, they're like the hazmat suits that they wear in factories, you know, when they're working with materials that could obviously be very hazardous to, but it's in the first cover, it's him with the, the big machine parts and everything. And they have all the CDs. The second one is just the guy holding up the CD. And the reason I bring up the two covers, is because on the original race, it was a dreamier sounding album. It had a different flavor to it on the 
remaster release, it's more clinical sounding, I thought. Hmm. And I always felt that I liked the original better because I liked the dreamier pop sound and not the cleaner sound as much. And I noticed that on piano lessons and pure narcotic, that seems to be lost a little bit on those songs. So I didn't have a lot to say about this one. I said I'm definitely getting the Beatles kind of vibe, like something off of Sgt. Pepper. And it was cool. I liked it. Yeah, I, I just made a comment that is kind of a lush tune. You know, you, you get some of these harmonies and piano and acoustic guitar. Definitely, yeah, awesome tune. All right, so this one uh, leads into a song called Slave Called Shiver. If you're a, a fan of the more prog metal version of the band, you know a song probably called Halo off the album Deadwing. Well, this was the original Halo, Slave Called Shiver. It opens up with this killer bass line from Colin Edwin, where he really shines on this song. Heavy drums, not busy drums, heavy drums. And it just creates this kind of groove that Steven sings over. And it's kind of angst vocals, angst singing, but it's controlled. But it just comes off as very kind of edgy on the sound. Even though the, the bass line's kind of grooving and you're, yeah, it's like, you're doing, that's not how it's being played, but you kind of feel like you're grooving with it. Mm -hmm. The lyrics kind of come off as there's a love interest thing going on here. It's unreturned love. And you could just feel Stephen as he's singing that he's like, stre not stressing, but there's a stress in his life over love that's not working out. There's really cool piano work that goes along on top of this groove that kind of gives it a little more of an ominous feel. There's analog synthesizers, Hammond Oregon, Mellotrons, all kinds of stuff going on. It builds up into heavy sections where the band, probably again, one of the three moments on the album where it's just super heavy for them, swirling sounds on the psychedelia going again, but it still has that groove going the whole time. Great tune. Always love seeing this live. They never played it enough, I thought because they, they got kind of hyper-focused on their more heavier metalish type stuff, proggier metal stuff and type stuff, you know, in the 2000s. This is a forgotten track, I think, in their catalog. Hmm. I said, cool bass line. Am I crazy for feeling something vaguely nine-inch nails about this? Hmm. Maybe filter? It's got a cool, chill, kind of laid-back vibe, despite having heavy sections. It's kind of dark, too. And I think, yes, yes, I, th I think I like this one too. Cool guitar towards the end. That's why I say, hey man, nice shot. So same kind of thing here. It starts off kind of minimal with bass and piano. And then they lay down this really cool groove. And lyrically, I felt like, I don't know, when I came into this album, again, you know, when I listen to the albums that we're going to talk about for this. I always try to listen as objectively as possible, even though many of these albums, it's very hard to be objective about them. For the first time, and this, I feel stupid about this, but like for the first time, I realized how much this foreshadows In Absentia, like this song, because I feel like this could have been an In Absentia song because of the kind of the creepy, unrequited love kind of feel to this, the heavy parts of it, 
the you know the just the weird vocal sound of you know mother i need her it's just there's like a creepiness to it that like pervaded in absentia and kind of a heaviness to it that like it's not quite as heavy as in absentia it's definitely one of the heaviest songs on this album but to me it i i just started to see it like oh i can see where in absentia is going to come from now because like this i feel like was the foreshadowing of that oh yeah this album actually is significantly heavier than light bulb sun when you think about it with the the songs that are on here even yeah. though both albums are not heavy albums there's heavier right. songs on this so we move into the next song which is called don't hate me which kind of is a trilogy of songs about love if you think about it with pure narcotic slave called shiver and don't hate me this is the longest song on the album I'm always torn about this song because whenever I've seen it live and it starts, I'm like, Ugh, all right, I know this. But by the time the song's over, I'm like, oh my God, I love this song so much. It's an interesting song. It opens with a nice drum groove from Chris Maitland, which kind of leads into this slow tempo driven song, depressing lyrics. It's about someone who's obsessed with another person from afar. Again, read love songs in a row, which is strange for Porcupine Tree, considering how the album opened. There's some really cool, sexy sax and flute from Theo Travis, who's better known for playing with bands like Soft Machine, The Tangent, King Crimson, David Gilmore, Gong. The middle section sounds similar to a song, sounds similar to the song Stupid Dream, but with methodical kind of background guitar and sax. It feels like it's an interlude in the song itself. When it slows down, it becomes very minimal. And... That's the part where I'm like, do they really need this in the song? I mean, it's already eight and a half minute song. And there's about 90 seconds. I'm like, oh, this is one of those times. See, so it's not just me picking on the Mars Volta uh-huh. <laughs> about this. Okay. I even do it with my own bands. And I get it. But sometimes you're like, eh, do you need that? Really? But to come back to the chorus and to finish this song with a tasty guitar solo from Steve Wilson kind of makes up for that part. So many moving parts in this song you know, with the slow tempo at the beginning. Uh, but it's a very cool song. And it's a song you have to grind through a little bit, I think. And when you get the feel for it, then it becomes more apparent. Don't hate me, because I'm a creep. I'm not like you. Okay, it doesn't sound like Radiohead, but I get the same lyrical vibe. I feel like I should dislike when he goes high for the chorus, but I don't. It's pretty cool. But Jethro Tull called. They want their flute back. Matt called, wants his sax back. And I thought it was a nice ambient break at the three-quarters point. Oh, did you? Yeah, I liked it. Nice. Okay, good. Awesome. Yeah, so I said it's mysterious and trippy. This is one of my favorite Porcupine Tree tracks. The bass line is really cool. The The flute is perfect for this. And then the sax lays down a chilled groove back into the initial spare riff. I miss this from them. The stuff happening around the six minute mark is so laid back and creates an atmosphere that they just don't do anymore. So unlike you, John, I actually really like the middle part (laughs) that just meanders off into this atmosphere. And I, I feel like that's like, I mean, you said it earlier some of this atmospheric stuff, they don't do it anymore. And the, I don't know, I used to really enjoy the journey that you would go on in some of these tracks 
you know, and going back even further to like Moon Loop and stuff where they were just kind of just jamming and kind of spacing out. I, I feel like this is kind of one of the last times you're getting that, you know, before they just became a much like what before the songs kind of became a little tighter, even though they did certainly longer songs later on, there wasn't this atmospheric feel to them as much. I, I don't think when you start thinking about stuff that they did later, like blank planet and that kind of stuff. So anyway, I like this atmospheric stuff in the middle of the song. Well, that's an interesting point you bring up. You're right. With these songs, I think they can improv more live. Hmm. With the newer stuff, they're so tight and they're so constructed. There's no room for them to kind of have a jam or an atmospheric break that extends for sounds. There's no room for that. These songs breathe a lot more, I think. Yes. And and I agree with you on this. Now I'm going to have to go back and listen to this song (laughs) for like the ninth thousandth time to see if I'm okay with that 90 second section. But okay. (laughs) All right, let's keep moving because there's a fair number of songs on this. The next song is called This Is No Rehearsal. Now the songs get a little shorter and they're a little different now. So this is another song that opens up with kind of a cool drum groove, along with this, some semi-acoustic guitar work. The Stephen Wilson telephone vocals effect is very prominent in this mm-hmm. song. The song does have a burst of a heavy section after the chorus, only to return back to this kind of cool, sweet groove that they do with the acoustic guitars. But there's some kind of interesting, you can correct it overall, but it sounds like he's really working on his wah pedal quite a bit on this song. Yes. Yeah, and there's some great bass work that goes with it. Uh, lyrically, Stephen Wilson has stated that the song is about the tragic murder of James uh, Bulger, a two-year-old boy that was killed by two 10-year-olds in England. And I guess that everything they saw, the boys taking this two-year-old boy on CCTV, and you could see them taking him and then he goes, so they go off and I think they killed him, I think in, a, in some wooded area, I'm not sure. So if I'm wrong and actually anyone is listening and wants to correct me on it, please do. Um, it's a short song, but I love that it's now a different song from what we've heard. We're kind of all over the map already. It's seven songs into this. And now it's a little groovier type song with uh, a little bit of burst in the middle. So I said that the, the song title sounds like he surprised the band for this one. Psych, this isn't a rehearsal. This is the real recording. But okay, this one reminds me, until it gets heavy, of Jesus Jones. Do you remember them? Mm-hmm. Or maybe even Ned's Atomic Dustbin. I remember them. Yeah. Which is noise. And to piggyback on what you said, I said, somebody has a wah-wah pedal. Go to town with your bad self. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this is a sad story of a woman losing her child to abductors. I like the wah-wah guitar solo. And while he doesn't consider himself a guitar player, I think, uh, as you said, John, earlier, I I think Wilson's playing was always tasteful. Mm, That's a good way to put it. All right, so move on to the next song. Another short one called Baby Dream and Cellophane. And this song just features Stephen Wilson and Richard Barbieri. Opens with Stephen on guitar and some psychedelic sounds. There's more of the telephone vocals. And there's some really cool analog synthesizers on here that sort of remind me a little bit of the song Every Home is Wired off of Signify, especially in the chorus. 
it just has that vibe. There is bass on this song, but Steven actually plays the bass. Uh, I love how he constructs his melodies, especially during the chorus on this one. It finishes with some heavy guitar riffs. And again, the sound kind of drifts off into uh, another kind of sound design area, which kind of gives me the feel of the song Idiot Prayer, again, off the album Signify. So while the band has ventured off into new territory here, he's still pulling a lot from his previous albums on here. It's just shorter bursts of it. And they're not bursts, but smaller pieces that remind you of what the band used to be. This really is the transition for them. I didn't have much to say about this. I said, again, this reminds me of someone, maybe the Beatles again. It's a cool song, kind of psychedelic. Yeah, I said another semi-trippy tune. The layered vocals are beautiful. And John, I agree with you. This is kind of a, a transitional kind of song because they're still drawing on some of those earlier sounds, but kind of bringing them into the modern, like whatever you know they were becoming. So they're still drawing on some of those influences and some of those sounds, but kind of building on that. And so you can see like they're, they're slowly starting to change. They're tightening it up. The song structures are getting smaller and shorter, but, but still drawing on those sounds. All right. So we come to the next song, Stranger by the Minute. This was also released as a single. It's a shorter song again, but a little more time heavy compared to the previous songs. It's only four and a half minutes, but it has a different feel again. This is now their most straightforward alt-rock song on the album. You know what you're getting when you hear this opening riff on this song. It's a happier song. Everything else has been pretty depressing up to this point. It's like, oh my God, how much more of this album do we have to go? And then you hear this <laughs> song and it's like, oh, okay. This is kind of a happy pop song. Snappy alternative pop song with some psychedelia in it. The chorus is great. I kind of love the soft spot. I, I kind of have a soft spot for this song because it sort of reminds me of the Sky Moves Sideways Signified period, again, in the guitar work, but it's an alt-rock song. Again, he can't still shed his old albums yet off this album, but they're done in smaller doses. The beauty of this song for me is that I'd always wanted to see them play this and he always shied away from playing it. I don't even know they really ever played this song much. And then TR and I went and saw them at Radio City Music Hall and they opened up the whole show with this as an acoustic version. It was just like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. <laughs> so uh, the most, I don't want to say generic song, but for what they're doing on this album, it's pretty straightforward. Stranger by the Minute also applies to my notes, apparently, because I don't recall why I wrote what I wrote, so bear with me. I said, I'm reminded that I thought Porcupine Tree was at least vaguely prog metal, but there hasn't been a whole lot of metal on the album so far. That said, it's been a quite nice prog rock album so far, and don't ask me why I said this, but I said, don't go off the rails. I think maybe that means that it's an allusion to what you just mentioned about it being a very like normal sounding track and that I don't want them to go off the rails and be completely weird. So that's my guess as to what I was thinking. Yeah. I remember this as a single and again, the, to me, you know, what's funny is, is like 
like you said, John, this song has a lighter feel to it. But if you listen to the lyrics there, I think they match up with the themes from In Absentia again. You know, you've got like this, you know, this oddness and this weirdness and I'm getting stranger by the minute. And it's just, it's kind of, if the music itself hadn't sounded so upbeat and lighter than the last couple of songs, lyrically, I think these lyrics would fit in like within Absentia. So he was like moving toward kind of oddness. And I, I guess, you know, all of his songs are kind of odd, right? Like they're just kind of weird and sometimes lyrically. And, you know, with the jazzy harmony vocals, you, you know, it's it, it belies the weirdness of the lyrics because, again, it's it sounds light. It sounds poppy. But when you listen to the words, it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of it's weird, a little weird. Stranger like, by the minute. Ly- lyrically. Yeah. Yeah. Opposites attract on this album, no doubt. Yeah. And up to this point, we've had all these kind of dreamy choruses and that that's another song that has that. Yeah, I, I didn't mention, but as I'm hearing the chorus in my head, I'm thinking of them, you know, this layered chorus happening. And then again, there's that little bit of slide guitar in there, mm-hmm. which just hasn't been able to shed that, you know, from the sky move sideways signify period. But it's done in such a way that it sounds different, even though he's still doing it. So... So now we move into the, the back third of the album for the most, or back quarter of the album. And this is, these are some of the, I think, even newer fans, these songs here now are, are really revered, especially this song, which is the next one, A Smart Kid. It's one of the real gems on the album and in all of the discography of Porcupine Tree. It's hard to describe this song because it, it opens very quiet, but it builds up into kind of an epic, and I don't want to say bombastic because it's not bombastic, but it's a big sound. There's a lot of orchestral type sounds in this. And I believe the, uh, what's that I say? It was the East of, I'm looking for the name here. I already lost it. The uh, East of England Orchestra, excuse me. I'm having a hard time reading tonight because I'm exhausted beyond belief. There's this great bombastic feel to it but then it still has this kind of almost depressing quiet side to it too. Lyrically, this song kind of explores the feelings of isolation and hopelessness, which this song sounds and feels exactly how it sounds and feels. I mean, you get that from the lyrics, the imagery that Stephen uses of a lone survivor, the smart kid, you know, in a post-apocalyptic world. And I stole those words from a site called Neural Rust, which is one of the most comprehensive porcupine tree sites I've ever seen. It's insane how much information's on that, that site. Uh, but to get back to the song, it's somber, it's sparse sounding, has these epic moments. There's some great analog synthesizers going on here. I do feel pretty lonely when I'm listening to this song. It's slow moving, but it's epic. And the guitar solo is just tasty. It just floats along with the, it's almost like the band <laughs> is floating during this song. A little bit compared to previous songs. Oh my God. Okay, so I said, still hanging out in the psychedelic neighborhood. It's kind of trippy, but also fairly grounded by the drums and bass, keeping it real and plotting. And I don't mean plotting in a bad way. What I meant was they kind of anchor the song and keep it from floating away. <laughs> 
Yeah, I said it was a lonely song that rem- actually I get a similar vibe to Russia on Ice. And yeah. a- again, you know, the sole survivor in a post-apocalyptic world hoping to go with aliens that are exploring and they come by and here's this one guy and he's like, hey, won't you take me with you? I don't have enough room for you. <laughs> Maybe the next transport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now we move on to the next song, which is the only true instrumental on the album. It's called Tinto Brass, which was originally entitled Tin Space Two Space Brass. You might think that's kind of a weird name for a song. Well, it's actually based on a Italian erotic director, if I'm not mistaken, whose name was Tinto Brass. Hmm. This is a tour de force of performance and intensity. It starts out with weird sound design again in the beginning. It easily could have been on, you know, the album Up the Downstair, the way it starts. Up the Downstair was their second album, which was really just basically Steven and and a little bit of the band popping in to play on parts, but it was pretty much all him. The song's proggy, it's psychedelic. It's heavy. This the heaviest moments on the album are on this song, but it's got this hypnotic drum beat that's just pounding. It just drives. It's this has something that I like to refer to as porno bass on it. Mm-hmm. Which if you which is a term. If you know the bands like Particle and Osric Tentacles, they have this kind of bow, chicka, you know, bow, it's and I believe Particle describes their music as space porn funk. And you know what? That kind of is in this song too. This this could have easily been an Osric Tentacle song without it's, the heaviness. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a little too heavy for Osric's. But there's tons of flute in it and daring. Yeah. I mean, but it if you take the heaviness out of it and put Ed's guitars in it, this could yeah. easily be an Osric's Tentacle song. It opens up also with this woman speaking in Japanese, which at the time was Steven's girlfriend who spoke fluent Japanese. And she was basically reading the biography to the film director, Tenobras. And I think she was just basically naming off all his albums, hmm. which is kind of, or all his movies, excuse me, which is really kind of funny. I absolutely love this song. It's the most metal-ish of the album, if you want to say that, or metal-like on the album. It's not for the whole song, but it gets really heavy. It's always been awesome live. And I've seen them do this a number of times. And it's a great song that leads into the final song of the album. I said it starts off sounding like Indiana Jones is going to melt the faces off some Nazis. Then a woman speaking in maybe Japanese, apparently confirmed. Weird, but cool. Yeah. Nice driving drums. All right, let's do this. Is that some kind of crazy flute type thing? Yeah, Travis returns. I'm more than halfway through the song and I'm starting to think this is an instrumental. <laughs> but hello, heavy guitars. Didn't expect to see you here. Okay, I guess this is kind of proggy and a bit more experimental than the rest of the album, but that's still pretty cool. And I really dig when it gets heavy. I said an instrumental tune that rocks with flute and jams at the end. It's a def- definitely one of my favorites too. That's funny you say jams at the end and it's like, a six minute jam from start to finish, but it, well, yeah, but I know what you re- mean. really jams at the yeah. end. Now we're re- like, as we yeah, as we like to say on the other podcast, which I notorious for saying, like, 
when we do our top 25 albums of the year, I'll notoriously say I picked 19. Now things are getting serious. It's, <laughs> it's redundant and old after yeah. a while until you get to like the top 10. Then it's funny to say, cause we're, and it's just, the, yeah, we're yeah. half in the bag at that point, you know? So, mm-hmm. but TR, you bring up a good point. I mean, th- this is where now it's getting serious, you know, on the song yeah. at the end. So, right. All right. So let's stop this long train. Which we'll stop this album with an album or song called Stop Swimming, which is the final track. And this is another in a long line of great final tracks on Porcupine Tree albums. Stephen, a hallmark of all his writing is that the last song on the albums are usually great songs. Everything from Fade Away off of Up the Downstair, Dark Matter off of Signify. Collapse the light into earth off of in absentia, glass arm shattering off a of dead wing, sleep together off a of fear of a blank planet. That's that's over half the albums. The last song is great every time. Mm. You know, I wish that I know people kill me for saying this, but I wish Light Bulb Sun ended with Russia on Ice, to be honest with you. Mm. So I'm not so big on the last song on that home, but it's sad, it's somber. There's a drum beat from Chris Maitland which is methodical in how it's played, but the way he chooses to play it and the way he uses his toms, it really is just depressing. And people think the song is about suicide based on the lyrics, but it really is kind of about something TR mentioned earlier about the music industry. You work your ass off so hard for what? You get nothing. And it's Stephen talking about, well, maybe it's just time to stop trying, stop swimming against the current, you know, which obviously he never intended to do but the idea is there you know you're working so hard for nothing they're taking everything from you and you get that vibe in in the song it's just it really is depressing and i can't remember which show it was and i can't remember tiara if you and i were both at the show but i remember steven saying live once he said sometimes the saddest sounding songs are the most beautiful songs and this is definitely one of them it's a great ending it's hard to describe how depressing this was <laughs> yeah. while still being a beautiful song. After hearing that, I'm scared to read what I wrote because it's, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna pass. Mm. Okay. Well, I said this is solemn, sad, and heartbreaking. And, you know, it sounds like it's about giving up. And John, like you, i I read a little bit about this and got the same kind of message about, you know, Stephen feeling like, well, you know, do I have to kind of sell my soul to, to get to where I want to go or not? And, you know, being pushed into like the, this, you know, he had always kind of blazed his own path, you know, with his own unique style of the melange of different various things inspirations from all the different types of music he listened to growing up and throughout his life. And he brought all that together in all the music that he made. And, you know, I don't think, I don't think it was ever his intention to be like a pop star or anything. And I, I, you know, he was never going to be that. He got popular, of course, you know, uh, in his own way and with Porcupine Tree and then later as a, you know, as a solo artist. But, but I can understand how 
you know, when you don't know if you're going to be famous and you don't know that you're going to make it and that you're going to have, you know, a, a large fan base that, you know, can basically stain your career. It would be very easy to think about kind of giving up and either, you know, quit or just go with the flow of, you know, maybe making something more popular or what, you know, you think maybe people expect out of you. Thankfully, he didn't do that. Although maybe you could make arguments that he did in some ways, but ultimately, you know, during this period of time, I, I don't think that was the case. It's a very spare arrangement and a haunting song. And I've always really liked this song as well. So just a couple final thoughts for me. This is an absolute gem of an album. It's one of my favorite Porcupine Tree albums. I thought about it today and I think I got it second now. I think it pushes past in absentia as much as I do like that album, even though it's new Porcupine Tree, mm-hmm. which when I say that, there really is a, a defining change and shift in the band at that point. This is not Signify yet for me. Signify is still my favorite album from them, but it's pretty close. And I like how it's a tweener. It's still dragging some of the previous albums with it, but still venturing off into new territory. And I think this is an album, if you've never listened to Porcupine Tree, I think you should start with this album, to be honest with you, not in, in Absentia, because I think you get more flavors on this album than you do off of In Absentia. And if you can, if you like this, then okay, you can choose. Do I want to go forward with the more rock song oriented or heavier parts that are to come? If I dig the psychedelic stuff, I can go backwards down and do that. And I think it gives you the option or you can kind of just stay in that period here and do this in Light Bulb Sun and the album recordings and you could be just as happy with those three releases. Piggybacking off what you said, I said, ultimately, I feel like this is a pretty safe prog album. If you aren't a total prog nerd, which you guys are, you can still listen to this and come away with things that you can appreciate. So I'll call that a win. There aren't any songs that I disliked. So go, John. I'd like to know how this compares style-wise to the rest of their catalog, which you've brought up a number of times, but. Yeah, well, you'll just have to listen, George. I guess so. Yeah, this is going to set you off on on your deep dive. Future love of Porcupine Tree. I don't know, Chair. I I think that this is its own sound because this is a certain. This This was just a small window, right? Like this was kind of like a snapshot in between periods that like I said, was kind of too short for me because I really liked, I really wish they had been here for a little longer. At least Um, one more album. Yeah. Just like, yeah, just a little bit more would have been really nice because again, they kind of never did this stuff again after this. Like they really kind of got away from this, especially once they, and I think that might, I think Chris Maitland was a big part of that. You know, I think when they got Gavin, while they got an incredible drummer, just the whole mood and the style and the everything kind of changed. Some would say for the better, but like, I I kind of feel like Chris Maitland was the perfect drummer for them for this style of music. And I kind of, I think once they got Gavin, there was no going back to this because he's too technical to to do the kind of things that are going on these albums. I mean, he's obviously, he plays this stuff live with them. 
But in terms of like naturally going toward a sound like this or naturally kind of playing drums in a kind of more spare fashion, I don't think he would tend to do that. And so he's going to he's going to flavor it with his own thing. And you're not going to get like this style of music out of him. So, you know, I they're never going to go back to this sound. Sadly, I mean. I mean, I like it and I like, and don't get me wrong. I like the, you know, the, the modern porcupine tree too, but, but there was something to be said of this period. And it, it's, there's like a nostalgic feeling that you get when you listen to this, that, you know, maybe you don't get as much with the other periods as much. I mean, obviously I like, like, you know, sky moves sideways period as well, but like, I don't know, there's something kind of wistful about this period of time that I, I really like from porcupine tree. No, I I agree. And I just have a few more comments. So, John, uh, and I I don't want to put you on the spot, but like, do you know how many times you've seen them? It's got to be like in the 20s, right? Or more. While you're doing that. I I got it. I'm just shaking my in the 20s. Well, probably more like 50 or more. Really? I saw them 15 times on one tour alone. Yeah. (laughs) No, I take that back. Nine times on one tour. Well, still... Um, I've seen them 38 times. Wow. Well, I've, I've only seen them 13 times. I've they only was... seen them once. Oh. And I've gone to England to see them for a few shows. I saw them nice. in London, which was very cool. Mm-hmm. I was at the Roxy Atlanta show with my buddy, David Reynolds. I want to give him a shout out. He's another one of the people that I met through Porcupine Tree. And then, of course, John mentioned the Radio City show in 2010, which was at the time their final show. But I'm glad that they came back together and toured in 2022. It was great to see them live again. It felt like the old days going to see them and being there and hearing those songs after so long of not hearing them live. It was just a real, I don't know, it, 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 it instantly transported me back to the early 2000s. And was so cool to just hear those songs again live and enjoy hearing them in, in, you know, live again on stage. And I'm hoping for more. I don't know if that'll happen, but I'm hoping that maybe they come back again. I agree. Just one last thing I'll say. I, I want to make sure if anyone is listening, they are newer pork. And I say newer again, the newer style, the prog metal version, prog metal, prog rock version of Porcupine Tree. I love In Absentia. It's one of my favorite from them. And in its defense, it's still a pretty experimental album. There's still some really cool kind of psychedelic things going on, but they're they're a little different in their sound. They're more modern sounding. They don't have that warmer feel of the older albums, mm-hmm. but there's still some cool stuff going on, like Gravity Eyelids, stuff yeah. like that, like right. Dot 3. Yeah, you know. or so Wedding Nails. I mean, wedding, no, there's still that there, but that's where it stops completely after that album. Yeah. From there on out, it doesn't, it's not the same. It becomes more, it becomes bigger, everything about them. So I'll just say, TR, just to put this in perspective, and then we got to get to George's album. Sorry for going long. I saw this band at Fletcher's in Baltimore. That was a hole in the wall. <laughs> wow, I haven't to heard us, That is a name I haven't heard, I haven't in, heard in a long, long time. time. Well, of course I know it. I was there, you know, <laughs> so, and that was my fourth time seeing them. But to think that they went from Fletcher's, now mind you, they played Nearfest before that, but to go from Fletcher's to Radio City Music Hall to the show they just released on DVD, which is in front of like 15,000 people, 
is an amazing journey they've been on. So while I've had my gripes over the years, and I, they're still one of my favorite bands, kudos to them for continuing the, the journey. George, real, real quick, uh-huh. you're not getting off the hook. What were your comments about Stop Swimming? Oh, <laughs> it essentially, I'll, I'll get to it. Let me, I just have to scroll back down and find it. I've, I was clearly burned out by this point. And so it was lazy. I said, cool, chill, kind of focusing on those symbols for some reason. Oh, yeah. I said, it's kind of like the snare on Injustice for All, but not in a bad way. It's just that once you focus on it, you can't not hear it. It's hypnotic. Yeah. And I said, yeah, and that, that was really all I had to say. And I'm like, you played it up like the, you know, so big i was like i can't say something just stupid about the symbols (laughs) (laughs) but i wish you did now to be honest with you because that's actually a great point i never being a drummer i didn't even think of that that his work on because i'm thinking of the toms you know the boom the whole song but the ride it's very hypnotic Mm -hmm. all right well if you want i'll I'll record it right now and just edit it in it's up to you whatever you want to do well let me say it I'll, i'll say it like i'm actually saying it I said, this is cool. It's chill. I kind of focused on the symbols for some reason, kind of like the snare on Injustice for All, but not in a bad way. Just once you focus on it, you can't not hear it. And so that was all I could hear for the whole song. No, that's a great point. It really is because, and being a drummer, I'm thinking of the his work on the toms as the hypnotic part, but I didn't consider that the... But, playing on the ride and it being so prominent it does create this hypnotic vibe to the song that kind of plays in the background of the sadness i i like that point a lot actually yeah it was just it just cut through everything and it was there you know so yeah no and we're not even talking about his bass pedal also it's all very hypnotic on the song so excellent point all righty last album of the evening my pick was Queen's Innuendo. Innuendo. Okay, and now I'm going to get wordy. I feel like Queen has always been an underrated band compared to their peers. But in my opinion, they're one of the greatest hard rock bands ever. And Freddie Mercury is probably my favorite rock singer of all time. That's right. I said all time. Ever. So I'm hoping maybe discussing this album will inspire some people to take a deeper dive into the Queen catalog. Innuendo was released on February 5th, 1991. Innuendo is the band's final studio album before the untimely passing of lead vocalist Freddie Mercury later that year. The album is a testament to Queen's enduring creativity and musical prowess. The recording process for Innuendo began in early 1990 as a collaborative effort among the band members. The album's title track, Innuendo, set the tone with its epic and intricate composition, featuring flamenco guitar work by Steve Howe of Yes. Go on, laugh it up. The no, song was the I <laughs> no laughing about it. I mean, that was awesome. Oh yeah, Frog nerd. The song not only served as the album's lead single, but also showcased Queen's ability to blend various musical styles seamlessly. The album features a range of musical genres, from rock anthems like Headlong and The Show Must Go On, to the reflective ballad These Are the Days of Our Lives, 
which became poignant given Mercury's health struggles at the time. The song would go on to be the album's final single and is remembered for its emotional music video featuring Mercury in one of his last on-screen appearances. Despite Freddie Mercury's declining health due to the complications from AIDS, the band persevered, delivering an album that not only showcased their artistic evolution, but also addressed Mercury's personal struggles and reflections on mortality. Tragically, Freddie Mercury passed away on November 24, 1991, just months after the album's release. Innuendo is a poignant farewell and a testament to Queen's enduring legacy, marking the end of an era for one of the greatest rock bands in history. The album remains a timeless piece of Queen's discography, celebrated for its musical richness and the unbreakable spirit of its iconic frontman. I remember reading stories talking about how Freddie was so weak he could barely stand in the studio when recording his vocals for the album, and would quickly become exhausted and have to rest. Listening to the album, you would never guess how poorly he was doing, because his voice sounds as amazing as it ever did. Much like David Bowie's Black Star, you have to really admire Fred's determination to complete one last epic album. There's so many really great tracks on this album, but it can, it can be hard to listen to because knowing what was to happen in the coming months, it can be a really depressing listen. So I, I like Queen, but I don't actually have much of their music. Obviously, I know all the hits, but some of their stuff was a little hit or miss with me. I only actually have one record by Queen, and that's Jazz. Huh. And I actually bought that for the poster that came with it. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> you guys just steal it in, from the bathroom at their show. <laughs> Guess I could have. No, so I mean, so for the longest time, I I really didn't even have anything by them. We've all heard the hits thousands of times, mm -hmm. but but I was kind of glad that you picked kind of a well any album really. I mean, I don't I'm not very familiar with a lot of Queen's music, especially like the deeper cuts and everything. So this was a good opportunity for me to kind of hear a little bit more of of their stuff and get a little bit of a, an idea of the various styles and genres that they kind of played with, with their music. Yeah. I, I'm probably the least queen fan here. I don't dislike queen at all. I just never really got into them. I've heard every hit song a million times, especially on Sirius XM where you do get slightly deeper mm -hmm. on some of their stuff. Yeah. You do not super deep, they go to the next tier, I think, of their songs. So I, I know a lot of their stuff. Their sound is unmistakable. That's a you know great who they are. thing to say. I love that. When you hear them, you know it's them. And that's not necessarily just because of Freddie Mercury. You know Brian May's guitar. Absolutely. The same guitar. It's never changed. <laughs> you, know, you know the chorus lines. You know the operatic feel. You know the vaudeville that they inject in their music. It's there. You, mm -hmm. you, there's no way. And I'll be honest with you. I know the bass and drums because those two play a certain way. And I didn't appreciate them, those two, as musicians until I watched. I think, George, I mentioned this to you. I watched one night. I think my better half, Jen, was either at her mom's. I don't know where she wasn't here that night. And I watched the live concert from the 70s. I can't remember which one it was couldn't get over how good Roger was on drums. I was like, oh man, I, I knew it was pretty good, but 
So I've always known them. I've always appreciated them. Obviously, I, I have I know the tie-in with David Bowie and Under Pressure, mm-hmm. which is just one song. But I never have listened to a full album straight through. So wow. this was a, a nice experiment for me. And I will say, when I get started up, I'll just start up by saying, this is not the queen I expected based on everything I heard prior to this. So, Well, my initial pick was A Night at the Opera, which was a little too obvious. It, it is the biggest album. And I think you should listen to every track on that album because the deep tracks are awesome. But this one was more personal for me. And so I switched to this one because it's, it just, it is. Yeah. So the first song is the title track and it opens the album with a grand and epic sound. It starts with an ethereal kind of Zep vibe. And then Freddie starts singing in a fittingly ethereal style as well. And boom, a nice hook after only a minute and a half, which is cool since at six and a half minutes this is the longest song on the album. The song is epic, people. It may not be the same caliber as Bohemian Rhapsody or the tragically less known Prophet song, also on A Night at the Opera. But this is a great song that deserves to be mentioned alongside those other classics. After a few less than stellar albums, not including A Kind of Magic, which is awesome, the band kicks off their final studio album with Freddie in a way that lets you know that they gave it all to this release, and it paid off. And yeah, okay, Steve Howe does some cool flamenco guitar, whatever. You're welcome, prog nerds. But my boy Brian May brings some sick riffs to the party, too. I said this was a good way to start the album. And like you, it's like, it, I said it's epic, an epic sound. It's got this Middle Eastern style or mode mm-hmm. that was sounds like it was inspired by Kashmir. That's what I, I was thinking, that. too. Yeah. Uh I was amazed to discover Steve Howe played on the Spanish guitar parts in the middle of the song, which was awesome because I'm a big Steve Howe fan. And I thought I was a big fan of his and didn't even know about this guest appearance on this album. I never even heard that he did this. So I was shocked when I read that he he played on this. And you can tell it's him. I mean, you know, you listen to it and it's like, yeah, that's Steve Howe. So, yeah, I, I felt like this was a great start to the album. So. I'll just be repeating everything these guys said. Literally the same <laughs> words. I actually love this. It's my favorite song off the album. And I actually, and I'm not just saying, oh, well, I listened to a bunch of songs. It's my favorite. I actually like this song a lot. I love the cashmere kind of Middle Eastern vibe to it, which I'd read that elsewhere too. But I had to hear that after a few lessons to, to really understand that. It's not a typical Queen song, especially as a single, because it's, it is different. But that's what I love. I have written here, epic and grandiose feel. And it is. And at first, I didn't like the middle section, not the flamingo part, but the section where they get to the prototypical queen vocal arrangements. Mm. But after listening a few times, I'm like, they could stay. It's not <laughs> bad. <laughs> and I wouldn't say it's a prog rock song. And I would say Kashmir's prog rock song. But there's prog rock songs a little bit in that they're doing something completely different. They have similar vibes to them. I love this song. It's a great opening track. And again, it just doesn't sound like your typical Queen song. And I think that's what makes it such a great song. Mm-hmm. It is a little different than what you're normally used to hearing from them. You should check out more of the deep tracks because, you know. Well, I have a little bit off the first two albums because I still contend that they're the first thrash band ever. 
even though it's only a one song, but. Let me guess, that would be, that's terrible. Like crazy. Stone Cold Crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hell tie yeah. Tie Your Mother Up is not that far off from there. Tie either. Your Mother Down, right? Or Tie Your Mother Down, excuse me. Up, down, whatever. All right, track two, I'm Going Slightly Mad. The title and lyrics of this song show that despite his illness, Freddie still had a playful side and a sense of humor. The line that always stuck out to me on this one was, I think I'm a banana tree. <laughs> to be facing down your own imminent mortality and face it with humor to me is incredibly inspiring. I remember initially being slightly annoyed by this song when the album came out, just because it was kind of weird, but you just have to understand it. And once you do, this is one more gem on Queen's crown. This continues the cashmere vibe, I think, from the first song. Kind of ethereal. Um, I'm guessing it must be like a synth thing, but oh yeah. That Brian May solo cuts right through all of that. And he says, look at me. I don't have anything to confirm this, but I initially thought that this song dealt with Freddie dealing with his illness and, you know, maybe being homebound and kind of stir crazy. But in retrospect, I guess we probably try to find all kinds of meaning that isn't actually there. My research for this showed that this was really just sort of a funny ha-ha song. So mm. is what it is. Yeah. I I enjoyed the humorous lyrics on this. And I'm, I'm glad they didn't overdo it. They could have gone like overboard on that. And, you know, ha-ha-ha, hoo-hoo, hee-hee. And thankfully it didn't become like a kind of a goofball tune this kind of gave me like a blinded me with science kind of feel <laughs> a little bit yeah i get that but yeah i i thought this was okay i didn't really you know i didn't go crazy about it but i thought it was okay and you know it's it very it's very british right like oh i'm going slightly mad you know and yeah this is it definitely takes a while to to sink its claws into you i mean it and like i said initially i was a little annoyed by the song and it took me a while to actually grow to love it so i'm like utr this song's okay it's a little bit of a letdown for me because george has heard me go on and on about the number two song on an album after a, a big opening track i'm always big on the number two song being another big track to keep the momentum going it's a little bit of a momentum change with the synthy vibe pop feel and it's a little vaudeville cabaret-ish in the way he sings mm -hmm. with these kind of mm -hmm. you know one-liners yeah, like little asides and yeah. yeah it's like there's a little inside joke between the four of us that you don't know about we're going to sing about it a little <laughs> bit yeah <laughs> right uh, you didn't get that joke kind of thing yeah and so <laughs> yeah yeah it just kind of i felt like i kind of i'm missing something i yeah. need a little more oomph after the opening track and i but i did like the guitar work kind of being opposite of the playful sound of mm -hmm. the vocals and synth the guitar work's kind of cool and odd and different than the rest of it. And I noticed that throughout the whole album. I was going to say, you're going to see that through the whole thing. He has a lot of jagged sounds to warm, synthy, playful sounds from Freddie. It's interesting. So, All right, track three, Headlong. This is probably the most radio accessible song on the album. It's driving and catchy, and it's a bit of an earworm. It was written by Brian May with the intention to use it on a solo album but he decided to use it as a Queen song instead. Freddie sounds amazing on it, so I'm glad he did. This song is such a banger. The riffs are dirty, but the song itself has class. 
Yeah, I remember this single, and it's a rocking tune that sounds like a signature Queen song to me. It's got a cool, heavy guitar tone. And yeah, I just like when I heard it, I was like, oh, I remember this, you know. Boom, diddy, diddy, boom, yeah. diddy, do. Well, that I didn't care for as much, but the, <laughs> ah. there's the, yeah, but the rest of it I thought was really good. But yeah, no, I, this is like a rocking tune. And this is kind of, I'll say it, and I know, you know, obviously, like, as you said, George, there was a lot more diversity on this album in terms of stop musical styles and everything. I kind of wish there was more of this on this album. Mm-hmm. I'll say it. I'll let you live. Okay. <laughs> Agreed on all the points. This is a uh, kick-ass song. It's got a kick-ass opening. And again, like Jay steals all my notes on the other podcast. Somebody stole my notes on this podcast. Because <laughs> I said similar things, George, heavy driving, hard rock song. They incorporate all the signature queen vocal arrangements but it's a modern sounding version of it. So that whole Diddy thing, yeah, it's there. But this still sounds like New Queen in terms of the sound. That's because it's a different era. There's more sense. I noticed there's a lot of sense on this album yeah. in different places, which I wasn't always used to. I was always used to piano playing and keyboards, not so much synths. And there's a difference between synths and keyboards. But I do like this song. I like the balance between the heavy sound and the catchy melodic vocals. And in a sort of weird way, tie in time. Yay, go John. I get a little bit of the cult vibe here on this, a little bit on some of the heaviness. So they don't sound like the cult. I just get a little bit. And I'd have to go back and listen to the song again to see where I'm getting that from. But it just has that. And maybe it's just the period when this came out, because this period would have been a a time when the cult was really big. Just the kind of hard rock vibe I'm getting is similar. Hmm. Yeah, so doesn't sound anything like the Cole. I just get no, the vibe no. is similar. So <laughs> okay, I get it. All right, track four. I can't live with you. This was another track intended as a Brian May solo song, but the band liked it so much he decided to do it with them. I think anyone that's been in a relationship can probably relate to this one. I can't live with you, but I can't live without you. You know, this song combines Queen's hard rock drive with pop sensibility. This one gets stuck in my head as well. I feel like this could have been a leftover track from the sessions for A Kind of Magic. Such a catchy tune. Total winner. Yeah, I I said it was an okay song. The lyrics allude to the conflict one sometimes faces in love. Mercury's vocals are way up front on this, which I guess you'd expect on a Queen song, but I don't know. I... It was catchy, definitely catchy, but uh, I don't know. A lot of times, like a lot of these relationship type songs, I'm not, I'm, I don't know, I'm not really big on a lot of that, but it was definitely a You don't like song. all those feelings and stuff. Yeah, I don't want all the feels. No feels for you. <laughs> not until decibel anyway. Well, okay. I don't mean, I don't mind being felt. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, to me, this was uh, a song that could have easily been part of their 70s output the way it it just reminded me of that. But it's a modern sounding queen again to me. And while I I don't have the history with them like you guys, I do hear some of the similar things they've done in the past. But it's again with this newer sound. And what I mean newer sound is just all the synth pads. I do think the chorus is catchy. 
I'm impressed that, I, and I realize they could mix Freddie higher, but still he's got to sing whether he's high or not in the mix. And I was impressed at, at the power he had in his vocals on this song, considering where he was in the condition he was in. So I like this one better than I'm going slightly mad, to be honest with you. So, and up to this point, I've enjoyed the album quite a bit. Excellent. Track five, Don't Try So Hard. This is another one that feels like it should have been on a kind of magic. Sounds like a cousin to Who Wants to Live Forever. It's very synthy, but I don't even care because Freddie. He could have sung the phone book and I would have listened. So have I mentioned Brian May is amazing? Did I mention he is a PhD in some sort of astrophysicist sort of way? Jeez, dude, come on. Make the rest of us look bad. Astrophysicist by day, rock star by night. Yeah, no big deal. No, it's actually rock star by day, astrophysicist by night. Oh, good <laughs> oh, point. I good point. Yeah. Telescope ain't going to work for right in the middle of the day. That's a good point. Buckaroo Banzai. And rock stars play at night, so. Wait, oh, wait, no, I got that wrong. Never mind. Yeah. So I said this was a pretty song. And Freddie sings a little too pretty for me on this. Oh, but but the guitar soars on the solo. So I really enjoyed that part of it. And yeah, I mean, Freddie is singing beautifully. I just prefer like not so pretty. You want some dirty. Well, yeah, a little bit more like gruffer, like a little, you know. Maybe, maybe a little smudge on your shirt kind of singing. Yeah, yeah maybe time. something like yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't as big on this one. It felt like there were a couple songs merged together in this, in the construction of it. But I thought the chorus was really good. And I almost just feel like this is a, a piano man type song. I picture him sitting, you know, on stage, they would have him sitting on the piano playing, which always looks strange when you consider what a front man he was. I just picture him sitting there playing and singing this song. Yeah. It just has that, that feel to it. I don't dislike this song. It just didn't necessarily grab me. And maybe because, like Tara mentioned, I was, I'm yearning a little bit for the heavy stuff because they're really good when they're heavy. Mm. All right. Track six, Ride the Wild Wind. This was written by Roger Taylor as a sort of sequel to his I'm in Love with My Car, which was a track from A Night at the Opera. Is it me or does it have a little bit of Ghost Riders in the Sky vibe on the drums? I, I kind of got that, but I was like, yeehaw. And I <laughs> dig those car zooming sounds. Yeah, I, I did too. I, I like the guitar solo and the speeding car sounds. But this song seemed like like a demo or about like two revisions from being done. Like Freddie's hey, 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 that, <laughs> all that seemed like kind of goofy to me. Like, you know, I don't know. I <laughs> That part just kind of like hit me the wrong way. I don't know why, but I did like the kind of the feel of it and like definitely felt like you're driving fast and you're, you know, zipping around in a, like a sports car or something. Yep. Got my notes too. That was just George. Yeah, I had a similar take on the song. I kind of like the driving vibe between the drums and the bass. It, it's not necessarily rockabilly, but it's got that kind of beat. It's got that upbeat. It does feel like you're on a car road speeding in a fast car type song. Um, I like the little mix of 80s new wave touch on it a little bit that I'm getting, but that's just what I'm hearing. I thought the guitar work was great. The riff and the solo was cool. Um, yeah, and... I kind of like that it's a, a play on uh, Roger Taylor's other song. 
you know, I'm in love with my car. I kind of dig that. I like when bands bring stuff like that back into the mix years later. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of dug that. Cool. Track seven is All God's People. Like some of the other songs on this album, this started life as a solo track, but this time for one of Freddie's solo albums. But ended up as a Queen song. It has a strong gospel influence and features guest vocals from the London Gospel Community Choir. It's definitely very vocal-oriented, but you can hear Brian sneaking little riffs in there to make his presence known. I'm not sure really what the story behind the song is, but who cares? Rock on. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a Southern Church service choir. Uh, I, uh, you know, definitely kind of, this was an unexpected track kind of, because like I didn't really expect to hear like a Baptist thing going on, you know, in the middle of this album. But, and clearly like, Freddie's vocals are very emotive in this song, but it, it kind of suffered a bit from the weak keyboard tones, hmm. like the cheesy kind of late eighties, early nineties keyboard sounds. I kind of regret that they, you know, it would have been like, I kind of wish that they had put a Hammond B3 on this rather than like the cheesy, like synthy mm-hmm. sound that they did. Like, cause I think it would have really, been a lot more soulful i mean it was already soulful with his vocals i mean you know he put an enormous amount of soul and feel into it and then it kind of gets undermined by these cheesy keyboard parts that come in at the end and it's like what happened you know like (laughs) who let that guy in (laughs) i kind of wish they had put like a cool hammond sound on that makes sense yeah well again Really, who's tapping into my notes? Because <laughs> I wrote this Queen meets gospel with the with synthy vibes mixed in. I, I got the same stuff you guys got there too. I, I didn't necessarily have the feeling you did, TR, about the synths, but it was at this point on the album, I started to realize, man, there's a lot of synths on this album. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, and I think that's because they're so prominent on this song that it, you start to really notice it. It, it kind of, the, the little bluesy vibe in the middle of the song. It's just there for a little bit. And I'm going to make another tie-in on this. Mm. This one more shows the influence of this band on other people. But during the chorus for We're All God's People, it reminds me of some modern Devin Townsend choruses, like on the song Where We Belong, where he has the big kind of choral, you know, mm. the big group of people singing. And it almost makes you feel like, you know, are these modern artists that we listen to are they queen fans because you could almost say you've got a lot of influence from queen because i hear a lot of that the big chorus Mm -hmm. that is gospel like i would Mm -hmm. definitely think that devon would be a queen fan i would it just feels like when you if you guys go back and listen to the song where we belong that's all i could think of on it when freddie was singing it actually the whole band sings that's the one beauty of this band is that everybody can sing in the band i love you know the the gospel chorus to this i'm not a gospel fan per se i mean but i can appreciate what it is Mm -hmm. and it has that real nice feel in the chorus on this it's really cool that you mentioned that because i totally hear that in like devon's style Mm -hmm. these days it's very stuff it's very big and epic and like that and yeah totally it just yeah so yeah and he actually uses wall of sound vocals to great effect on his albums and 
that's definitely going on here. So absolutely, I would, yeah. I would so, hear that too. Yeah, go back. It's the song Where We Belong off of Epic Cloud. All right, cool. Track eight, These Are the Days of Our Lives. Sounds like a soap opera, but it's not. Or is it? Due to how sick Freddie was, the last few videos were shot in black and white with lots of makeup. But by the time they shot These Are the Days of Our Lives, it was impossible to hide how gaunt he had become. The video ends with a close-up on Freddie's face, and he whispers, I still love you. Cue the waterworks. Musically, this is less of a rocker and more of an introspective pop song, but I'm not going to hold that against it because it's such a beautiful song, both musically and lyrically. Knowing what's to come, these lyrics are extremely poignant. Yeah, and that's pretty much exactly what I wrote, George. I mean, <laughs> written by Taylor, but especially poignant given that Mercury was so close to death. I kind of wonder how that whole thing went when Taylor was like, hey, would you mind singing this? And, <laughs> you know, I'm sure it was, wow, you know, this is pretty heavy to be. Because, I mean, that's the whole thing is like looking back of, you know, your whole life and the good times and what was going on and, you know. That's pretty heavy when you're thinking like, yeah, I'm pretty close to death right now and I know I'm going to die and I'm, you know, I'm going to sing this with as much spirit. Yeah. And gusto as you can put into it. And so, yeah, it, it's really sad, you know, to think about what more he could have done had he lived, you know, however many more years because, you know, it's just, a, it's really a shame because even on this album, when he was sick and near death, he, you know, hits a home run and you think to yourself, okay, you know, how long could this guy could have gone? Like if he had, you know, not had this, you know, if he had never gotten AIDS or, you know, never had these maladies, what, you know, he probably could have continued singing for now decades until yeah, now right he'd still be yeah exactly which is just it's really tragic you know it's a shame but the fact that he put everything into this album is when i read about this because i you know i remembered that he had passed away sometime in the early 90s but like i didn't really follow it closely so i didn't really realize that oh yeah you know and i don't really remember the videos from that time and i it just i this was something that kind of passed me by and I didn't realize or see it or anything. So, so when I read about it, I was, I was really amazed. And especially like to listen to the album, it doesn't sound like this man is near death. No. Right. You, you listen to this and it sounds like a queen album. Like, Oh yeah, they're still going. Everything's good. And it's a like, return to their excellence from their glory yeah. days. It really is. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was, it's pretty impressive to just to think about. And, and I read like some quotes about like how he was like, no, I'm going to give it all until I drop pretty much. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to push, I'm going to pour everything I can into this because this, I know this is it for me. So I'm going to, you know, like I'm going to lay it out and he does. And, you know, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. It's like he would like go into the studio and like sing for like an hour and then he'd have to stop because he was too wiped out and then he'd come back in another day and sing for another hour, you know? Yeah. So for me, this was like the, if you want to call it that, the ballad of the album. And it makes sense given the title and the lyrics 
written for Freddie to sing. And it just solidified to me, which I already knew, but how integral each member of the band is because but songs like this, you think Freddie Mercury would be writing the lyrics and he didn't write the lyrics for this song. Mm-hmm. Really, literally everyone is involved across the board. They've all written stuff and they've all written stuff for others in the band to, you know, kind of spotlight them, which I find so interesting about them when you listen to their music. There's a lot of what you guys said that I won't repeat because again, apparently somebody stole my notes, <laughs> but I do like, I thought the guitar solo was really nice on this. And again, he's another guitar player that really has nice, tasty sounds, even though on this album, there's some jagged playing, meaning he plays opposite of what the band is doing, which I find really cool. Um, And it's like we've said, the lyrics obviously are influenced by what was happening in Freddie's life and what was happening for the whole band. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, while he's the one who was sick, it still affected everybody. It did. Uh, to some degree, you know? So I could see where this song would be really an important song for fans of the band. Lightening things up a little bit, track nine, Delilah. Freddie had a number of cats, but his favorite was Delilah. This is a lighthearted and playful song that I expect might resonate with other cat owners. John, does this add to the magical (laughs) mythology of the Queen catalog? No, it doesn't. But it is touching as hell that a dying man wrote a song about his favorite cat. Hell yeah, it is. It's freaking adorable. And besides, Brian May shows up to solo all over your face. So, didn't hit me the same way. (laughs) This kind of was like, this was kind of a throwaway track to me. It was almost with all the meows and talking about peeing on the Chippendale suite and... I mean, I get that it's like, you know, a song to a cat, but at the same time, like, you're a rock band, man. Like, don't put this on your album. <laughs> I don't know. It just, I, I just felt like, yeah, no, I don't need to hear a bunch of me. Now, I will say it's kind of interesting how Brian May got some meow sounds out of his guitar. That was kind of cool, but <laughs> that's about the extent of it for me. <laughs> Fine. John? Yeah. So at this point in the album, I was like, man, I'm really missing the heaviness from the beginning of the album right here. Just you wait. Oh, well, there's a reason why I said that. I will say that it's my understanding that the band, and George, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the album is the way it is because they knew what was happening with Freddie and they wanted to make an album that he wanted to make. And so the songs ended up being written in such a way. And while some of them were pulled in from solo directions and then moved to the band. It's my understanding that they were, they the three guys that agreed, yeah, whatever Freddie wants, we'll do. And I could see that's why this album, or this song is on the album. Now, if this was not the case and Freddie was healthy, I'd be like, hell no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. This song's going to the litter box. <laughs> so much for the cat guy. And I believe Roger Taylor actually does not like this song at all. That he's like, yeah, no. So I did not like the cat meow part. It sounded like that cat was in pain. And the whole talk box portion. Yeah, okay. But yeah, given the circumstances, made the album for him. Not yeah. the circumstances. Eh, that's going in the litter box. Right. <laughs> all right. 
Track 10, The Hitman. Well, this sucker kicks off like a freaking metal song. I expect the lyrics inform the musical style on this one. But yeah, this one actually kind of walks up to the metal music line and sneers across it. The guitars on this one are so cool. It's a total banger. So, whoa, that's more like it. Where was this for the rest of the album? <laughs> Killer riff and tone and the solo cooks. This song, this song saved the back end of the album, I think, because mm -hmm. it just, it rips. And it just like, I felt like, man, where was this for the rest of the album? I kind of wanted more of this, you know, headlong innuendo hit man. Give me more of that. I, I had the same feeling. So I thought the first, you know, three, four songs, four songs were, were good. The flow, even though I wasn't so big on the, on I'm going slightly mad or whatever the song title is. I can't think of it because I'm going mad thinking of it. <laughs> but I agree with you, TR. I like the back third of the, or the back, you know, three songs on the album a lot. And this is a great, just in your face, kick ass, big riff, great solo. I actually think what this shows is that while Freddie's vocals are very polished sounding, his range, he's always in uh, the same range. It's always good. George, I think I mentioned this to you. You never hear him go really low mm -hmm. in his range. And he's not a screecher. He never goes super, super high. He right. can go high, but he keeps within the range of what he can do. And he's excelled at it. He's not like Axl Rose, who has this insane high to low range. And you're like, why can't he just stay here most of the time? Mm -hmm. And I always thought Freddie was very good at staying in his lane. Mm -hmm. Not that he couldn't do that stuff, but he didn't need to. Very Steve Perry-like almost. Steve Perry's like that. Yeah. He knows where to stay because he's really good. And it's effortless for that, mm -hmm. these types of singers. And I think he shows he can sing a hard rocking song, even though his voice is very polished compared to kind of the gritty, dirty vocals on a hard rock song. And it really shines here. I think his, he's, this is what, to me, he stood out the most on this song because the song is so heavy and fast and upbeat that he chugs along just with it and sounds great. And you're like, man, really? This guy was dying? <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think that's a testament, not just, to him, but the whole band putting together a, a great rocker and like UTR, yeah, they've thrown a rocker in the middle of the album. It probably wouldn't seem like there was so much missing on the hard rock side. Yeah. But I like this a lot. Great song. All right. Moving on to the penultimate track, 11 Bijou. So I said, oh, those guitars. This is such a beautiful tone. I love it. This sounds a kind of magic like as well. TR, if you don't tell me right now that Brian May is a guitar magician, well, I don't know, but it's going to make me sad. <laughs> I have more to say. Okay. Just like this song when Freddie starts singing, it's rather somber sounding, but who can be sad with Brian playing like he does? Not me. Well, George, I will tell you that Brian May is a musical magician thank you <laughs> i agree completely that brian may is awesome but i did figure out the, the problem that i have with certain queen songs and they mm. sound like they belong in a musical uh, unfortunately i don't really like musicals we've determined that yeah 
Now, I will say I do like the instrumental portion of this, but like I said, the lyric sounds like it's part of a musical and I just don't care for musicals. Well, you need some culture, my friend. Maybe I do. <laughs> or maybe I just need the rock. Need the rock. All right. Yeah. I've always felt that there's a lot of vaudeville cabaret in his style. For sure. That he even took it past the musical aspect to that. He took it a little mm-hmm. further because yeah. he was about showmanship. Yeah. And the difference between him and a guy like David Lee Roth, who is very vaudevillish, is that Freddie could sing. So we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yep. Take that, David Lee Roth. Oh, man. Ouch. Well, just saying. You're but not I will wrong. say, Dave is still a great frontman. Yeah. So I like this song a lot. And I will say, I had to go look at the liner notes because I swear I hear Jeff Beck playing this song. This is a very Jeff Beck-esque song, soloing with that kind of backline atmospheric synth on there, which is very cool, which lays just enough groundwork for Brian May to really shine. Because if it's just him playing, there's a little bit of lost context. I got he's just soloing, but you put that bit of synth in the background just to kind of give it a foundation, and it's spectacular. And I don't, I'm not used to him, his soloing like this, at least not from all the songs I've heard, and I haven't heard that many. But I thought it was great. I didn't necessarily dislike the vocal section. I kind of, the song lends itself to having that little bit of break or lull for Freddie to come in, then we go back to Brian. And it's the perfect lead-in to what's coming. Mm -hmm. I really feel like this ties really nice into the final song. But I just could not help. For a second, I was like, did they also have Jeff Beck and Steve (laughs) Hell? On the album together, that's nuts. But it wasn't. Uh, and that's not at all a disservice to Brian May. I thought maybe the two of them were doing it together because it just. It's just how great Brian May is. Yeah. It mm-hmm. just really reminded me. And I'm like, again, not used to him playing like that, which was really cool. Yeah. All right. The last track, The Show Must Go On. I always thought based on the theme and timing of this one that it was written by Freddie, but it was actually initially a Brian May song. However, he did end up collaborating with Freddie on it, so Freddie did work on the lyrics. The not-so-subtle point here being that despite his circumstances, Freddie wanted to carry on until he was no longer able. An absolutely epic and gut-wrenching heartbreaker of a song. I saw Queen with Adam Lambert a few years ago when they played this song. It was an emotional tsunami. I'd stand this album closing track up against any other album closer and think it would hold its own. The show must go on. An incredible affirmation of life from someone looking down the barrel of the end. And apropos of basically nothing, I get this vibe like this should have been a Bond theme song. I don't know. I mean, mm. can you picture it? Yeah. Sounds yeah. like a Bond theme, theme song. Yeah. It has movie soundtrack quality to it. Yes. Yeah. So this is the first time on this album that I noticed the bass. I didn't hear the bass until this song somehow. On the con side, this also suffers from cheesy keyboard tones, but everything else about this song was great. Lyrically, another poignant song given Mercury's situation and definitely the right song to finish this album with. It definitely finishes on a high note. Nice. Yeah, uh, again, repeating what you guys have said, it's big, it's bombastic. It's their final curtain call, you know, and it's the right 
way to end the album. They're obviously, you know, if you couldn't figure it out, listening to this song, like, hey, what's going on here? This is kind of a strange set of lyrics and what do they mean the show must go on? You know, kind of like listening to the last song of the off the last Fate's Warning album. I said TR message right away and I was like, they're done. You, mm-hmm. you can hear it in yeah. the song and the lyrics. And you now when you look back on this song, you're like, man, you could really hear it. This is the way they plan to go out. The chorus, you know, the show must go on, that lyric. I hear that in so many modern prog metal bands. It's so influential how they wrote their choruses because I hear so many bands, they're lifting Queen. It's mm-hmm. good stuff. It's unreal. Yeah. And I feel like it's such a common chorus and not the lyrics, just the structure mm-hmm. of what they do. And it just goes to show you how influential this band really was because if I'm hearing it in those bands, you know, you're hearing it in other bands. Because it's well, such, right. a, I mean, such a small set of... Sample size, when you talk about prog metal bands, think about all the other rock bands and artists that are influenced. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry, Chad, I mean, to Well, I was just going to say that this band is so anthemic, right? Like, it, it just so many anthemic, just huge hooks that permeate everything they do, pretty much. I mean, they influence Spinal Tap with, you know, Fat Bottom Girls. Yeah, right. <laughs> they make the rock and world go round. By the way, you, yes, you don't do. have yeah, you don't have big bottom without fat bottom girls. So my last comment is, and I think this is poignant for the for this album is that I cannot help at the end of this album thinking of David Bowie's Black Star, which George mentioned, to think that two iconic singers who actually have a tie together, mm-hmm. you know, that they would power through privately you know only the people closest to them knew what was going on that they were power through and put out two great albums and i'm always stuck with this thought are these albums considered great because we know what they were going through and so we elevate them higher Mm -hmm. because you think oh they did such a great job or are they great because they're just great and i've always contended that as much as i love david bowie's black star it's overrated and i don't mean that from my perspective, I mean that from everybody else's perspective. For the general fan, they overrated because like, well, you died during this album. You know, you got you... brownie points for it. Yeah. And no, that album and this album are just good albums. Yeah, That's just are. what it is. And it's a testament to the will to get them done from the two stars of those albums. Obviously, one solo, one being in a band. So Yeah. You know, when you start out as a band, you've got that hunger and that drive and you've got that, that power. And then in the middle, towards the end of your career, you might start phoning it in a little bit, but then you know that this is the end. And so that gives you that extra burst of creativity and passion to, to, to finish it out. All right. So I've got, a, I've got closing comments that have absolutely nothing to do with the album going completely off the reservation, but I got to say it anyway, because Queen. So. One of the last live performances with Freddie was the Live Aid concert at Wembley Stadium. By this point in 1985, the band's career was a bit on the downside, but you would never know that from this performance. If you've seen the Bohemian Rhapsody movie, then you know that this was represented there and lovingly recreated. But to truly understand how great it was, you need to find the actual video from Live Aid. 
Freddie owned that stadium that day. It was as triumphant a return and worldwide swan song as anyone could wish for. I urge you, if you haven't seen it, to go to YouTube and watch the full 20-minute performance. When Freddie does the A-O bit, he has the entire audience in the palm of his hand. This is Wembley, but it sounds like a crowd from Rock and Rio in Brazil, like a million strong, you know? The response is massive. And the ending with We Are the Champions, there's a reason they play this song when they need something huge and majestic at like sporting events and things. It's brilliant. Anyway, go watch it. Well, I watched it live when it happened. So did I. <laughs> yeah. I was there for Sabbath, stayed for Queen. I was there for Bowie because he played also, I don't, he played earlier in the day from when Queen played, if I remember correctly. It's hard. It's that's going back 35, it's 40 years. I watched it on a 13 inch TV in my parents' bedroom. Awesome. And you know, for me, it was different than you guys because I was three hours behind. So mm -hmm. getting up early, I got to, you know, watch all of it. And then I know there was fatigue probably for people back East because then they had to do the whole East coast part of it. So you already watched all that, but I got up so early to start watching. It's like, I got the whole day. <laughs> so yeah, I was watching this thinking about Live Aid and like kind of relating it back to Woodstock in a way in that it was this massive concert moment for our generation Yeah, that people today are probably like Live Aid, whatever, you know, yeah. but at the time it was, it was a all massive... the biggest bands. Yeah. Like it was everybody. Yeah. It was our Woodstock. Yeah. And, you know, I still regret that I couldn't go to that show. Obviously, like, I wasn't big on every band that played, but it was, you know, it took place in Philadelphia. Like, yeah. I could have, I easily could have gone up there. Yeah. But it was a little before my parents would let me go to a show. And I know people that went. I could have gone probably if, you know, I'm sure, like, I probably could have gotten a ticket and I probably could have gotten up there. But it was just one of those things like that was the period of time when I could not go to shows and it has plagued me ever since. And that's why I go to as many shows as I do now. Yeah, I had two of those moments. One was Metallica's Master of Puppets tour with Ozzy, the last one with Cliff Burton, and my parents wouldn't mm. let me go. Uh, and Deep Purple's Perfect Strangers tour. I also wanted to go to that and they wouldn't let me go. Ooh. And so my first show had to be David Lee Roth. Oh, wait a minute. What tour? Eat em and Smile. I went to that tour, man. Yeah, with Tesla? I think Cinderella opened for oh, them. Oh, uh, nice. Where I, when I saw them. Yeah, it was Tesla for me. Okay. Wow. I had no roadblocks for going to shows. My first show was 13 years old. Without parental supervision, yeah. believe it or not. Killing me. Yeah. I mean, who's going to let two 13-year-olds walk around the cow palace? Yeah. Yeah, in retrospect, I get it. But, you know, at the time, yeah. it was like, oh, man. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I could tell you right now, I wouldn't do that if I was a parent. But hell, no, you're not going to buy Well, you did it, Dad. Exactly why you're not going to do it. <laughs> so that movie, the little 15-minute movie, Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Yep. If you've never seen it. 
That is exactly what it was like when I went to shows. <laughs> yeah. Yep. yeah. Well, that's because uh, that's what it was. I mean, they that was real people filmed in real life at that time. I mean, that's I mean, exactly what it was. That joke, you know, the dude walking out. Yeah, that was everybody. Yes. Every truck bed was dropped down and everyone was sitting in their back of their truck drinking beers at like noon in the parking lot. It was insane. <laughs> Anyway, good album picture me, guys. I enjoyed both of them. Yeah, I liked all yeah. of it. I was I was yeah, well pleased. Yeah. yeah, me too. I don't know how you'll feel about my next one, but I'm glad you like this one. Well, we'll <laughs> see. All right. Well, we're at an at the end of another episode. And George, do we want to talk about our favorite oh, albums from we, the year? We are not at the end of the episode. Excuse me. What? I forgot bonus. we were going to bonus extra like bonus footage. Hello. So it was suggested that we pick some current rock albums for this year since it, the year is now ending. And I didn't do my homework until right before the episode, so I have 3 <laughs> albums to mention. TR, I think you are probably the one to start off since you did your homework more than the rest of us. Okay. So there were a number of albums that came out this year that I really enjoyed. And so I wanted to share some of those albums with all of you. And so here's some of the songs or some of the albums that came out in 2023 that I enjoyed. Riverside put out an album called Identity, which was very good. I saw that uh, tour as well. They were awesome live. They're always great. Uh a band called Ice Age came back after many years uh, with an album called Waves of Loss and Power. It was an excellent album, and they haven't missed a beat since they uh, walked away in the 90s. Paul Gilbert put out uh, an instrumental guitar album called the Dio Album, where he plays Dio songs uh, just with his guitar, which I thought was um, pretty amazing because he... Uh, mimics Dio's actual vocals with his guitar, which Damn. is pretty cool. And that's a, it's a cool and it's a fun album. You guys will appreciate this because this is actually a metal album. Fires <laughs> in the Distance. Um, yeah. Aaron, Not Meant for Us, which I really enjoyed. Neil Sean put out his Journey Through Time, which was his live performance of old journey songs with Greg Rowley and Dean Castronovo and going back through their earlier journey catalog, which was, I thought really excellent because I enjoy that early journey stuff. The first three albums and, you know, infinity through departure, another metal album, actually the ocean put out Holocene, which was really cool. Witch Hazel put out their fourth album called Sacrament. Osric Tentacles released Lotus Unfolding. Sorcerer, which is kind of a, a doom band, put out Reign of the Reaper. And we've mentioned this before, Steve Hackett put out Foxtrot at 50, his live album where he features the album Foxtrot. So those are my favorite albums of 2023. Rock on. John, what you got? So when I suggested this and I said, oh yeah, favorite rock albums from the year, what I forgot was I didn't really have any rock albums in my collection for 2023. <laughs> <laughs> so I struggled hard. So I had to try to figure out 
what I could suggest you might want to check out. So a lot of these that TR already mentioned I liked, and I can't talk about the metal albums because we have another podcast that's going to be released soon. Sure. So you might hear some of them on there, maybe. But I will say that I did come up with a few. So TR mentioned Ice Age. That was definitely one that was on my list. Prog metal band from the late 90s. Their last album came out actually in 2001, and then it weren't heard from again until this year. And if you're familiar with the band Dream Theater, they're in the vein of that type of progressive metal, progressive rock. Great return. I did not include them. It's no secret. Didn't include them in my top 25 metal albums because it's almost a half prog rock album. With that said, if you are a fan of Dennis DeYoung from Styx, I think you might like the singer from this band who still sounds amazing because he kind of reminds me of Dennis DeYoung a little bit. Two others and then one album that I will suggest that I'm not a big fan of, but I think people might like. Another one, and these three are in my collection, the first three. So a band called Ocrist, but spelled with a V instead of a U. It's an album called The Approbation. They're a Norwegian progressive rock metal band. They would be for fans of Porcupine Tree, Anecdote, and the band Opeth from their prog rock side. If you know what I'm talking about, you might want to check out this band, Akrist, A-V-K-R-V-S-T. That's how metal they are. They don't use U's, they use V's. Yeah, that's so true. Girl. Girl with a V. <laughs> T-R-V-E. Yeah. And my last one here that from my collection, and I just got this recently, it's a band called Ions. And the album is called Counterintuitive. It's a progressive metal band from the Czech Republic, but it's modern progressive metal. So there's a lot of ambience. There's a lot of rock moments. It's an independent release. And it just caught me off guard. There's a lot of emotion. There's catchy choruses, kind of these heavy sections interweave with the atmospherics. It's very cool. And I have one last one that you would think that I would like, but I'm old and crotchety. But I think a lot of Get people off like my this. Lawn. Well, you would think that I would be all over this. But anyway, the band is called Crownlands and the album is called Fearless. And you would think that I would like this because they conjure up Rush from the 2112 to Hemispheres period on their sound with a little bit of high, heavy psych in their sound. You think, oh, I'm going to be all over that. I just, I can't do it because I love Rush so much. However, if you like that period of Rush and you're jonesing for a new band to play that kind of style, then this is for you. I mean, it's no doubt they, they're great musicians and everything. I just, I'll stick to Rush. But that said, I think a lot of people would enjoy hearing this album. Yes, I heard this album. I love this album. It is, it, it's obviously extremely Rush, but... It's still a cool album, and I bought it. Yeah. Oh, good. And as I told you, I was like, this is just the one time I can't do it. I can't. There's only two bands I can't do it for. Nah, Opeth, it's still cool. Opeth and Rush, I can't. <laughs> yeah, I liked that. I'd put that on my list. I will yeah. put that on my list. That's like my number four one. I'm just scrambling because I didn't do my homework. I forgot that we were doing this. So right before the episode, I picked three albums off of my phone. <laughs> so this is my... Sort of, kind of list. Um, first one is Smashing Pumpkins, and I don't know how to pronounce this. Atum? I don't know. A-T-U-M. And 
this is a rock opera in three acts. So technically the first act was released last year, but the second and third acts were released this year. I've actually been, I mean, I like old Smashing Pumpkins stuff. Their last couple albums before this were much more electronic. And I got to say, I really dug it. It was different, but it was so cool. It was like, it was electronic, but it was rock. This, however, is intended as a sequel to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, their probably biggest album. And it's more in the rock alternative style. So I wouldn't put it, I actually like the more electronic stuff better, but it's still something worthy of note. And I will mention it. My second one is a Norwegian band spelled P-I-L ampersand B-U-E pronounced, no, I'm going to butcher this, but Peel Agbu and their album Special Agents, kind of metal. I mean, I've put it on the metal podcast, but it's really more of a hard rock album and it is brilliant. I loved this album. I think this might've been an album of the month for me. It was. I thought it was a pretty good album. Yeah, it's a great album. And my last pick, y'all are going to turn your heads up at this one because I'm going with Peter Gabriel's IO. I love this album. You know, he's been teasing us all year, releasing dark and bright side mixes of songs every month. The entire album finally came out. I saw him back in September, October, somewhere around there on this tour. I thought it was a brilliant performance. And in terms of rock albums, this has got to be one of the best of the year. They both That's nod right. at me as if like, mm-hmm. whatever, well, dumbass. I, I have it. <laughs> well, you know, I had Peter Gabriel in activity fatigue, waiting so long for a new album. And then when yeah. he finally announced, I was like, oh boy, is it going to be another 10 years before it comes out? And so I just, I haven't listened yet. I've listened a little bit, not much. Yeah. The important thing is we have another episode where Peter Gabriel is mentioned. Every episode, Peter. Yeah. I'll have to do that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Are we done now? I think so. All right. Well, happy holidays to all and a happy new year. And we will see you again in January. Happy holidays, everyone. Rock on. Merry Christmas. Hello. Said Mr. Hanky. All right, see ya. Rock on.